storyline going uh not going forward if only i could skip this fan no no you can't <laughs> no. skip it no storyline in for this one yes Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Wrestling Mafia boss Alfredo Pridgen. How you doing? And the master of the Nerf Bat, John Mullins. Oof. <laughs> How's it going tonight, guys? Very good. How about you? Uh, doing okay. It only took, what, 18 episodes for one of you guys to ask me that in return. I'm, I'm touched. <laughs> So I can't. I shouldn't ask you that as well. You, you can. You can do that. That I would feel. Are you nice. still doing good? I am still doing good. Actually, yes. Good consistency is important. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't stab him between when I asked the question and when you asked the question. I, I know it was hard to resist the temptation. It really was. Tonight we're taking a look at Starcade 2000, unedited, unpredictable, unreal. Our final Starcade. Starcade 2000 was held on December 17th, 2000 at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C. in front of 6,596 fans. That's 2,465 paid. Ow. Yeah. Again, this is the same exact building that WCW was in in 1999 with over 11,000 people, in 1998 with over 16,000 people, and in 1997, with over 17,000 people. We're down nearly 11,000 people between 1997 and 2000 in the same building. So basically, if you could demo double the audience of 99 2000, that would equal 98 or 97 then? 6 and 11, basically? Yes, yeah, if you added them together, yes, you get back to what they were in 97, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying they all have good seats. <laughs> I guess you could probably have whatever seat you wanted. But yeah, there's a lot of empty space this year, and try as WCW might, there was just no real hiding it. I think it basically amounts to no one's in the cheap seats in the back, because there's plenty of room up front. Move them up front. The yeah, camera. yeah. I did notice when they were walking around uh, ringside, there was like a, a much bigger gap between the railing and the the ring, because I guess they didn't have like ground seats or something. I don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, Scott Steyer's in the show. You don't want to be that close to Scott Steyer. <laughs> that, that is a good point, yes. Also, Starcade 2000 received about 45,000 pay-per-view buys. That's about a third of last year's 120,000, a tenth of 1998's 450,000, and just about 7% of 1997's 650,000. 45,000. The only Starcade that did worse was Starcade 87, with its 16,500. But that one can blame Vince McMahon's hardball tactics in creating the first Survivor Series to run directly against it. Last year, WCW was at least about at its old levels. This year, it's clearly in decline. 2000 has been a very, very bad year for the company. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All but a single pay-per-view, Spring Stampede 2000, 
got less than 100,000 buys. WCW lost over $60 million in the year 2000. <laughs> yeah. Quite a bit. It, hit, it hits hard, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard to see why this is the last arcade. Yeah. Since 1996, Turner Broadcasting has been a part of Time Warner, but wrestling fan Ted Turner maintained quite a bit of control and supported WCW even as it declined. Now, however, Time Warner is merging with AOL, and with Turner losing his influence and the executives of the soon-to-be-merged company not too thrilled with WCW from a content or losing-loads-of-money perspective, the writing appears to be on the wall for WCW. In fact, a certain W Acquisition Company is currently in negotiations about acquiring WCW from AOL Time Warner. What is W Acquisition Company, you ask? Well, that would be a company formed for the express purpose of buying WCW by the WWF's Vince McMahon. But there may be a rescuer on the horizon in the form of Fusient Media Ventures, or however the heck you say that, who are working with former WCW head Eric Bischoff to acquire the company as well. Will WCW end up in the hands of its archenemy or its former boss? But all that is in the future. For now, we've got a show to discuss. Let's go to the ring. Ding. The WCW logo ominously glares at us to start the show, and we get an opening video package. Like last year, it's just an assembly of video clips that don't do a lot to tell us about the stories, other than that certain people are fighting certain other people. It has clips to set up most of the matches we'll have, but largely focuses on three of them. The Insiders, DDP and Kevin Nash, challenging the perfect event, Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo, for the tag titles. Lex Luger versus Goldberg, with Goldberg's career on the line, I guess. Yes. And Sid Vicious challenging Scott Steiner for the world title. We get some text again, but it's less strange and more generic this year. Alliances will form. Titles will change. Power will shift. Stars will rise. Champions will fall. So it's any wrestling show ever, then? <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> well, and what are the titles going to change into? Uh, Seagulls. Oh, okay. Yeah. At least they're consistent with that. Yeah, Magnum TA's been, uh, been training them. There you go. <laughs> Gold Seagulls? There you go. Yeah, gold seagulls. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's good, John. <laughs> I do like this year's Starcade logo. It's very sleek, and it doesn't include the horrible WCW logo. So you know, two points in its favor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although I did love the uh, <laughs> image you posted. <laughs> yes, I I improved the logo <laughs> to uh, two arm wrestling hands in the middle of it. That was that was good. <laughs> that is in fact the epic handshake between Schwarzenegger and his friend in Predator. Oh, okay. When they bro lock in the middle. There you go. There you go. See the most appropriate one for that. Yeah. We get a massive pyro display with fireworks going off all over the place for an extended period of time, and I think I know where a sizable portion of that $60 million loss came from. (laughs) (laughs) Host Tony Schiavone pokes fun at the 2000 presidential election and welcomes us to the show, introducing his co-host, Scott Hudson, and quote, the best-looking big man in all of pay-per-view, Mark Madden. I think Butterbean has him beat just immediately. (laughs) And that is not a high bar. No offense, Butterbean. Please don't hit me. (laughs) Tony and Madden point out the contract suspended above the ring, which is for a title shot against cruiserweight champion Chavo Guerrero Jr. 
And we're evidently heading right into the number one contenders match. That was brisk. So our first match is Sugar Shane Helms and Shannon Moore of Three Count, Jamie Noble and Evan Courageous of Noble and Courageous, and Jimmy Yang and Kaz Hayashi of the Young Dragons with Leia Miao in a six-man ladder match to determine the number one contender to the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this match is Jamie Tucker. And yes, weirdly, this is a match featuring three tag teams, but it's every man for himself, because it's for the number one contendership to a singles title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's been a long-running story going between the three groups. Originally, it was two groups. It was three count, thus the name makes more sense with, you know, three people. Mm-hmm. And the Young Dragons, just for the record, spelled J-U-N-G as a pun. Yes. Anyhow, there was three of them. However, they did a split story with both of them where one of the members uh, left each group. So we had Evan Courageous of the great match from last year's Starcade <laughs> kicked out of the group for being too grandstanding. Too courageous. To himself. And Jamie Son, as his actual name, kicked out because they learned he's actually not a Japanese guy at all. A white guy from, I think I want to say Kentucky, wearing a mask. <laughs> can be a surprise to them, right? <laughs> like, they, they caught him, like, before with a mask on one day. And yeah, I guess so, yeah. Makes as much sense as anything else here. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they each had members split off, and thus they formed the Team of Noble Courageous, who we see now. As far as them fighting with the Cruiserweight title, it's basically a case of they're really not promoting the title that much, to be honest with you. It basically sat on Mike Sanders' waist for a while, doing nothing. Before they they decided to revamp Chavo, thankfully moving him from the Misfits in Action, make him a heel, although that's like two weeks earlier than this show. Okay. That's like a triple tag team thing? Yeah. yeah. It's a triple tag team thing at the moment, except that they're all fighting for themselves. <laughs> Which isn't confusing it at makes all. It, it makes it less confusing. Earlier, when there were still two teams, they had a three-on-three ladder match where they had two different objectives in the same match. Oh my gosh. That's a different thing we'll cover at some point. Okay. So there's a three-count versus Young Dragons ladder match, and a three-count versus Noble Courageous versus Young Dragons ladder match as well. Which are the exact same matches, basically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Before the competitors come out, Cruiserweight champion Chavo Guerrero Jr. makes his entrance and joins the announced team. Two product placement. <laughs> three count may be the best thing to come out of WCW in 2000. I realize that's a low bar, but come on. They're a wrestling boy band with a theme song that's them singing about how they like boy bands and Britney Spears. It's so ridiculous it turns around to become great. <laughs> kind of does. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nowhere near the great earlier bonkers WCW theme songs like Man Called Sting. Mm-hmm. But this is WCW 2000. I'll take what I can get. 
It's no natural. I do have to note, though, that their original theme was even better by being even worse. Total generic boy band song here. Oh, boy. Nice dancing, John. You really probably should have been in a boy band at some point. (laughs) Only in my dreams. (laughs) I mean, I dance in my sleep. Is what really? (laughs) They even do the. They even do like the little echoey fades on the. Yeah, that was that was such a big thing with all those types of songs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The Young Dragons uh, manager Leah Meow actually first showed up last year as the cheerleader who led the varsity club out to the ring. Now she's dressed in what looks kind of like dominatrix gear and has a riding crop. I think I'm just going to leave that alone. (laughs) Jimmy Yang has amazing massive sideburns. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. Those are awesome. (laughs) They are great. (laughs) Just like, wait right down. Oh, my gosh. They turn too quickly, then like slash you across the face. Yes, yeah. Chavo actually does a really nice job helping to build up the teams a bit during the entrances as everyone walks around the array of ladders on the entrance ramp. Mm-hmm. He's actually quite a strong commentator, I think, during this match. I was yeah. pretty impressed by him. We start with just Shannon Moore and Kaz Hayashi in the ring and everyone else on the apron like this is a tag match. Uh-huh. Huh? <laughs> Moore and Hayashi trade quick holds and do some acrobatics until Hayashi nearly lands on his skull on a botched overhead throw, and they both understandably take a few moments to recover. Hayashi's okay, and he gets a cool Hurricane Rana counter to an armbar, but they get a little bit muddled on a flippy arm drag spot by Moore. Courageous blocks Moore from getting to the ladders, and we get tags to Yang and Helms. Helms doesn't look too eager, but Helms brilliantly double-fakes out Yang and everyone else, getting them to run for the ladders and fight while he and Moore retrieve their own ladder from under the ring and climb. That was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. They're stopped by the young dragons, who are then stopped by Noble and Courageous, but Yang dropkicks the ladder into the two, and the camera mostly misses Hayashi hitting a springboard moonsault onto the ladder atop Noble and Courageous. It's weird, because because of the height, the fact that the camera's not pointing while he's doing the jump, it's like he falls out of the sky yeah, yeah. into the shot, which is kind of cool, probably by accident, I think, yeah. in this case. It's a bit too much to hope that in 18 Starcades, WCW would have learned to point its cameras in the right spot, I guess. <laughs> Not the most egregious example we'll have tonight, but Not still true. pretty bad. The tag rules are out the window now, and Helms brings in another ladder, but quickly gets sent face-first into it. Hayashi fights Noble and Courageous and takes another apparently botched throw that looks like he either hit the ladder or the nearby mat face-first. Poor guy. If I remember that one correctly, it feels like the guy is going to drop him wanted him to do the flapjack move where you mm-hmm. fall flat on it. And looks like he did not want to do that, which I don't blame him if that's the case. Yeah. So it's kind of half-hearted because they're clearly pulling him that way and he tries to stop himself. Yeah. Smooth transitions are the challenge. They're not really fighting each other. <laughs> they're, just, yeah. they're just fighting their own inability to pull things off. <laughs> the true enemy is yourself. Noble and Courageous fight over who gets to grab the contract, as only one person can be number one contender. Yang gets a beautiful dropkick to knock both down, and gets to showcase a lot of his strikes and throws, leading to an amazing spinning moonsault off a ladder propped across the ropes. That was pretty good. Chavo says WCW has the best cruiserweights in the world. 
but Chavo is the best of them. Nice uh, way to build him up and simultaneously build yourself up. Yeah, there you go. Helms throws Yang out of the ring, and everybody takes turns diving out on everybody else, except for smartest man in pro wrestling, Jamie Noble, who just climbs the ladder to try to win. Mm-hmm. But Yang spots him and shoves the ladder over to dump him out on the rest anyway. Yang takes some time setting a ladder up too far from the envelope to grab it, and props another ladder horizontally against it and against the ropes. So everybody hits moves off the horizontal ladder until Yang and Moore decide to set the ladders up next to each other instead. Yang, Moore, Helms, and Noble climb up. Noble and Moore take Helms and Yang down with a sunset flip and sleeper slam, respectively. Noble tries to climb again, but Leia Miao attacks him, so Courageous rescues him. But Yang and Hayashi take down Courageous with a double-team powerbomb where Hayashi, if I'm honest, really didn't seem to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Kind of just like, I'll touch you Well, the other guy's doing the move himself. <laughs> a bit, yeah. Teamwork. Yeah. The dragons use all four ladders to set up a big scaffold structure instead of just setting the biggest ladder in the middle and winning the match. Three Count fling the dragons into the central ladder and nearly knock the whole thing down. But Bob, but Bob, so you need them together because it's more stable. Uh-huh, yeah. That 10 seconds before, then you're like, oh. <laughs> Yes, yeah. They did, at least I saw in the second time that they fling one of them into the, lad- into the ladders. I think it's Helms yes. thoughtfully grabs the ladders to stop it from falling over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody climbs up and goes flying off, and we get an amazing spot as Yang and Helms fight on the ladder, and Moore skins the cat up the scaffold to head-scissor Yang down, then skins the cat right back up. <laughs> really awesome spot there. Helms deals with Noble, and Helms and Moore end up on the scaffold, and shake hands and reach up to take the contract down together, which apparently counts. Three count are your number one contender, singular. Mm -hmm. Chavo says he's going to talk to his lawyer, but the ref is apparently fine with it. Uh, Thoughts on this match? Positives on it are, when they do their big spots, they tend to hit them really well. Their dives are really impressive. Their flips are really nice. For the most part, when they do the big setup spots, like Skin the Cap I mentioned, or the bit where um, Moore runs across the pressed-out ladder and jumps on the guy, mm-hmm. they tend to work really well. The problems, of course, as you highlighted, are one, a couple of spots nearly go really horribly awry. But you're just the one where I'm pretty sure the guy just didn't want to take a flap deck onto a ladder, which, again, I totally get. Mm-hmm. The other one I'm still confused about, I watched it a couple times, the first one with Moore and Hayashi, who I almost give MVP just because I feel bad for him. I'm going to take all the most dangerous spots in, I know. on this show. I'm like, man, next match you have, I'm sure it's much safer. <laughs> <laughs> My best guess on that one is like they were going to do an overhead throat, but then they rise ranks of the ropes. Maybe. So one's all the way over, and then you're pulling them down suddenly. It's, it's hard to say. Yeah. But one of the things you kind of have to see and go, I'm not sure what happened there. Something goes wrong, mistimed right. or mis or miscommunication of what they were doing. Something goes wrong. Yeah, and thankfully everybody lives. <laughs> yes, and as you sort of hinted at, there's a weird logic to this match where you want they want to set up ladders in odd positions just so they can do moves. Mm-hmm. Even though, yeah, it would be clearly much easier to just set a ladder up and try to win with that. Which, as we sort of hinted at with the previous year's show, when we had the one-one ladder match. There's none of that because there's no extra person or persons there. So you have to do that stuff. You do it straight one-on-one. I think this gives us a pretty good example of the problems we were talking about last year with the complex ladder matches. There's just no real reason for the ladders to be set up in the manner that they're set up at times. They just need them that way for a series of spots. Mm -hmm. 
I will say just sort of conditionally about this match, though, I think some of that is their general lack of experience combined with their excitement to do these big spots. Oh, yeah, fair enough on that. Because if you watch TLC matches from this period with the other Hardys at the Christian Dudley boys, there's a little of that, like putting tables in the right spot before you climb a ladder, just then you can slam through it. Yeah. I feel like there's less seams to it mm-hmm. in those ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I could see it being a, you know, a lack of experience thing to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's just this, this is kind of the issue that comes up with the multi-man ladder matches that yeah. we were talking about the previous year. I think, yeah, just a little more evident in this one because of that mm-hmm. factor. Yeah. So. yeah, I can see that. And, of course, the finish is very strange because they started as a tag team affair, quickly abandoned that, and then all goes back to a tag team victory. <laughs> yeah. So I like the match a lot. There's definitely conditions to how you can like it. But as far as the pure excitement factor, it's a good opener in that regard, I would say. Mm-hmm. I can sum it up in three words. <laughs> okay. Energy. <laughs> all right. Synergy. Mm-hmm. Profit. (laughs) (laughs) This was an insane match, just for the sheer amount of ladders that were utilized. There was a lot of hiccups in the very beginning. It was really hard for me to get into it, and, you know, until they did some nice, uh, interesting jumps, where they had the ladder pinned uh, in between the ropes on one of the turnbuckles. I thought Mm -hmm. that was kind of neat. And after that, I was like, all right, well, maybe they're going to do some unique things. And then it was just a couple flubs here and there, and the camera angles were not helping. Or were they? <laughs> I don't really know if they were. I don't know, yeah. Because we probably would have missed a couple other things. I did like the random person appearing out of thin air. <laughs> I was really impressed with the Young Dragons and uh, Three Count. I don't know if we needed the third. <laughs> pair mm-hmm. but you know with the storyline i could see why they have six people in the ring it was all over the place i always like a energetic start but it, it seemed like there was a just a lot of chaos mm-hmm. i was surprised when i'm like wait they're not partners when they're first going for it, i'm like well i thought they were just going to have you know like you take it right yeah and i thought that would have been nice mm-hmm. There's one part, I think it is Yang, where he does a roll and then like does this uh, hand motion. Yeah, yeah, does the rapid punches. But yeah. he's like two feet from him. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that is probably the most fictional thing that we've seen in wrestling yet. And, yeah. and, and what's funny is I'm sitting here the whole time like, this is the last arcade. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> I laughed really hard at that. That was the best part of the match for me, honestly. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And they're, they're really, like, over-the-top way that... I forget who he's doing that to, but... I think it's more. It might be more, yeah. He, like, does the double punch at the end of it, and he just, like, visibly throws himself back up onto the ladder on the corner. Oh, yeah. That's the funniest thing. <laughs> it's like they did the effect in reverse and just played it forward. Yeah, yeah. He hops off the ladder, but then they just play it Yeah, yeah, it looks like that. They were do. Well, it was... It was... It was interesting. <laughs> You know, I did enjoy some of the moonsaults. The moonsault with the twist was kind of nice. I thought that was like a really high yeah. uh, high risk, high reward kind of move, even if it doesn't actually hurt the person, but it looks pretty deadly. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I was losing it at this point because I wasn't certain on the wind conditions here, and I'm like, uh, there's a short pinfall. <laughs> 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 They're like, no, I guess there isn't. <laughs> I knew there was going to be some sort of fallout on the three count wins, but I think that 
if they didn't resolve it here in Starcade, I think it would be a good storyline to continue. So I think that's why they did it. Yeah. Try to keep people interested in, in that uh, storyline. Yeah, that I found pretty interesting, too, actually. It like doesn't really make sense that that's allowed to be a win, but at the same time, it is kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. They offer each of them half a contract. You both work for half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once we were past the weird tag opening, this was an assembly of absolutely amazing spots that was unfortunately held together by setup for the sake of setup, like we mentioned earlier. All the spots are incredible once they happen. It's just that the setup for them feels fake, and it makes it clear that you're just watching a stunt show, not a competition. But I don't want to sound too down on this match. Despite some very visible flaws in the form of the setup and the botches and such, it was still a good and very fun opener with some absolutely incredible stunts. Just like you guys were saying, probably less experienced guys trying to put together a match and... I think you you called it out. You can see the seams. Yes. Mm-hmm. A match like this will never be as high on my list as a singles ladder match because of that setup stuff, but it's still very fun to watch. I was thinking it's a little ironic, too, that the ending turns into briefly a sort of scaffold match. Yes. But even that, I think that brief bit of the men's scaffold is more attending than either scaffold match. Yes, I, I, I will agree on that. And I'm sure Jim, Jim Connard likes it better as well. Usually that formation only has three ladders for, like, painting and stuff. So yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. It would have been cooler if they took two and then made, like, long ramps that they could all run in to the there center. You go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one jumped with a ladder in their hands, which I was disappointed about. They could have done a moonsault while holding a ladder. But they, they got to build to something, John. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, I have seen that spot, actually. In one of the later, I think it's in one of the Money and Bake ladder matches. John Morrison has a smaller ladder and does... Does a moonsault dive to the outside with the oh in his gosh. hands? Crazy! That's bonkers. Yeah. So someone did actually do that. They didn't do any advertising. I thought they would like work in from Warner or you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure these ladders were quite as good as the ladder from last year's show, though. It's true. The ladder from last year's show looked really solid. Yes. The set looked a little more like the usual wrestling ladders, <laughs> you know, the cheapo ones you buy for ten bucks in, in a six pack. <laughs> The fallout to this is actually pretty immediate on Nitro. They open Nitro the, literally the very next day and say that to determine who the number one contender is, they're going to have a match between Shannon Moore and Shane Helms, which opens the show, in fact. It goes back and forth. It's actually a really good match. And fortunately for Bob, I mentioned this because Shane Helms wins by debuting his new finisher, the Vertebraker. Oh, I missed the Vertebraker by one day? Yes. Oh, I know. It is a terrifying-looking wrestling move, but a really cool-looking wrestling move at the same time. Yeah. And it ends up uh, in his theme song in the early next year. He has, oh, like a, yeah. he has the Vertebraker rap song as, as his right. theme. It's, it's yet another so-cheesy-it's-awesome <laughs> song. <laughs> the follow-up of this is setting up Shane Helms to go after Chavo of a long-running story okay. champion. Did WCW ever like cut a record for like the full versions of intro songs and stuff? Uh, yeah, they. I, I in fact have a CD of uh, of WCW themes. Mm-hmm. Though oddly, some of them on there are not actually complete. There's some of them it, like gives you thirty seconds and then fades out. I'm like, this is your CD of songs. What the heck? Yeah. But then other ones, it'll do the full thing. Yeah. Whereas WWF slash WWE has done like ten or twelve of this. Yeah. Yeah. They've even gone back and done re-releases of older themes as like retro releases. Yeah. 
See? They're on the ball. They need to do a few WCW albums. Yeah. I would expect WCW to do something like on Philips Laserdisc or... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. There you go. I I need Starkey 1999 Laserdisc. That'll complete my collection. Yes. Why do I have this? (laughs) (laughs) Backstage, Jim Duggan polishes his lumber. That's not a euphemism. And Lance Storm comes in to chat. The sound helpfully actually decides to join the party a few moments later. Duggan had been a part of Storm's Team Canada, but left. Storm says that when Duggan joined Team Canada, it was for the long haul, and that the American fans won't take Duggan back now. So if Duggan wants a career, it's with Team Canada. He hands Duggan a Canadian flag and tells him to think it over. Duggan sits there looking distressed. I did actually think that was pretty terrific acting from Duggan here. He looks like a man really struggling with this situation. Yeah, not bad. We go back to a door with a WCW commissioner sign, this time not crossed out for David Flair, and Jeff Jarrett meets with Commissioner Mike Sanders to tell him that he'd like to change the upcoming match with himself and the Harris Brothers, formerly Creative Control, versus the Filthy Animals from a street fight to a bunkhouse match, which uh, is pretty much a street fight, just, I don't know, maybe with different weapons. Yeah, it's got a wheelbarrow in it, that's something. Yeah. No bunks, though. I thought they'd have, like, bunk beds. They'd have the bunks, yeah. Yeah. Sanders says the match has already been advertised as a street fight, which seems like a fair argument, especially since the show has already started, but Jarrett doesn't care. Jarrett compromises, though, and says they can do both, so Sanders agrees. I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to our combination street fight and slightly different street fight match. Maybe they can make it no disqualification and no holds barred, too. Or maybe anything goes as well. Ooh. Just to really change things up. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, for me, anyway, uh, Mike Sanders looked uncannily like Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I can kind of see that. I think I can see that. 2000, that's not really a compliment, but 2020, that is definitely a compliment for him. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly, Mike Sanders, one regret I have with his character. So they put him in charge of the... Um, Misfits in action. N- well, no, no, no. The Good big Colonel Sanders. Uh, you ruined all my setup, Bob. Yes, I do. <laughs> <sighs> You're, you're not. You're not fun. <laughs> we cut to Chronic. That's Brian Adams, formerly of Weird Facial Hair Arrows, and Brian Clark, formerly of Poorly Taking Vader Splashes, in a sauna, thankfully with well-placed towels. Clark is on the phone and says that if someone shows up with the cash, they'll do the job. He hangs up and tells Adams that they'll get the cash as soon as the job's done. Adams says Clark knows their policy. Clark says yes, in almost exactly the manner of one who has no idea what their policy is, and Adams clarifies that their policy is cash up front. Adams says, though, that they can make an exception because this job is special. Good thing, since Clark already agreed. (laughs) Cunning negotiators, these two are not. Yes. (laughs) Adams says he's baked, as we cut. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To be fair, they are chronics, but with two Ks. Yes. So... Both of which are capitalized, by the way. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Back to the ring for our second match. So our second match is Lance Storm with Primetime Elix Skipper and Major Guns, Team Canada, versus Ernest the Cat Miller with Mrs. Jones. Referee for this match is Mark Slick Johnson. At the previous show, Lance Storm had been trying to win the U.S. title back from... Jim Erection, 
he was using Team Canada to help get an advantage from in the match. So to even things out, Ernest Miller came out and interfered, helping cost him the match, so he was going to win the U.S. title back. And the condition for their match was that it'd be the final match between them, no matter what happened. So now Lance Storm is out of contention for the title, Okay, which he's really mad about. And as mentioned in the previous promo, Hacksaw was having second thoughts of being part of the group, which is another factor in this as well. Team Canada comes down to the Canadian National Anthem. Storm grabs a microphone and asks to be serious for a minute, demanding our respectful attention. He makes fun of how long it took to resolve the 2000 presidential election, and says that the world's laughing at us. He says Team Canada stands as one, and they're going to win. He requests everyone rise for Canada's national anthem. We never really found a good foreign heel replacement for Russia after the Cold War, did we? No. Canada? Really? Who hates Canada? (laughs) South Park, I guess. I guess. Canadians. (laughs) No, no. It's hard to hate Canada. (laughs) Cat's theme interrupts the anthem, and Storm's double take almost makes up for how horrid Cat's James Brown ripoff theme actually is. It sounds like MIDI. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. Cat has bright red shoes on. Cat blessedly cuts his music off fast and says that he's going to represent the USA and kick Storm's butt and send Mark Madden back to Canada with him. Did he just become the biggest face on the show for you, Al? Absolutely. (laughs) I can't really guess no matter what he does after this. (laughs) Cat goes to dance, but we miss most of that because we cut to a lady in the crowd holding a sign saying that she came to see the cat dance. I think that speaks for itself. I think it had shoes on it, too. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Which was nice. <laughs> Just like, come on. Yeah. I, now, I can only hope that because the camera was pointing at her that she couldn't actually see him dance past That would be hilarious. <laughs> we need a third camera for this shot to then pan over and see, show the camera and verify he's blocking your view. Cat <laughs> takes off his red shoes and Storm hesitantly gets into the ring as Cat leads the crowd in USA chant. Cat dominates early with kicks and chops, as Madden calls his karate phony and his tournament wins legitimate in the span of a few sentences. My brain hurts. <laughs> Major Guns grabs Cat's foot on a whip to distract him, and Cat confronts her. Everyone argues outside until Guns and Jones get in the ring, but Storm breaks that up before a fight can start. Madden keeps making horrible comments that I won't repeat. Yeah. Storm attacks Cat from behind while Jones and Guns are leaving, and dominates with strikes and a jawbreaker, but when he pauses to taunt the crowd before a suplex, Cat rolls him up for two, so Storm clotheslines Cat right back down for two. Side headlock, and Cat draws power from USA Chance to fight back, and they go back and forth until Cat hits what Tony calls an undercut, which, yes, is actually a legitimate martial arts term, and sends Storm skyward, and hits a sidekick to the crotch. Ow! Elix Skipper hits Cat from the apron to help Storm, and Johnson sees it, but doesn't call for a DQ, because what are rules anyway? <laughs> Who cares? He does at least lecture Storm. Skipper beats Cat up outside, but Cat fights back against Skipper and Storm. Johnson comes over for more lecturing, but Storm ducks a kick from Jones, and it hits Johnson, knocking him dazed. He still refuses to act unconscious. Jones wins. It's over. <laughs> Jones wins a fight with guns by sending her to the barricade. Tony like wants them to cut over and like look at her like laying on the yeah, ground. Yeah, like, just, oh, look at the hips. And, like, and then they look oh away, gosh. and then they pan away, and then when they finally cut over, he's like, oh, thank you for that. Like, ah. Uh, uh, he's like, is, Lo- is Lois watching this show? Yeah, <laughs> come on, Tony. Well, I guess, well, no one's watching this show but us, I guess. <laughs> Clearly, the numbers fan that out. Yeah, yeah. 
Bad, Tony. Don't bow to peer pressure. Yes. <laughs> Back in. Storm does a really nice missile drop kick for zero as there's no ref. Which he probably should have known since he was there when the ref got knocked unconscious. Yeah, you think. Johnson recovers as Cat comes back with a nice kick combo for two, but Storm gets a great Northern Lights suplex for two. Cat flails wildly on a Storm waist lock as a distraught Jim Duggan comes to ringside. Storm sunset flip, but Cat punches free, but Duggan enters the ring behind him. He considers his two by four, but drops it and just clotheslines Cat from behind. Tremendous booze for that, especially considering how few people are actually in the crowd. Yeah. It was very audible. <laughs> Storm puts on the single leg crab hold, and Cat immediately taps out, giving Storm the win. The flow with the really weak looking clothesline, if I'm being honest, to Storm rolling through to his leg lock is not as smooth as I've seen him do the leg lock mm-hmm. before. I've seen him like roll through X ones running at him. A still uncertain Duggan joins Team Canada in the ring and Storm and Guns raise Duggan's hands. Guns takes the 2 by 4 and Storm nails Duggan from behind. Team Canada beats Duggan down as it looks like Cat is being helped to the back, but suddenly Cat just shows up in the ring and drives off Team Canada, including flinging Storm over the ropes. Cat puts on one of his red shoes and looks ready to kick Duggan, but Duggan just leaves the ring, and Cat makes a kind of he's-not-worth-it gesture. Thoughts on this one? Woof. <laughs> Woof. No, um, I was surprised to see Hacksaw uh, Mark Hamill come and one-shot him from behind. <laughs> I, I have uh, in my notes, with one red shoe, our hero retreats, realizing that we are all Americans. <laughs> but it seems like there's some invisible checklist to check off, and then they all just sort of walk off and don't like ever resolve any other thing. It's yeah. like, we did this. It is we a weird that. ending, isn't it? Yeah, it's... You know, in the whole, like, get my shoe, kind of, like, ruin the, the gravitas. Or Yeah. Whatever. I think it's supposed to be a loaded shoe, is it? Or I just, think, I guess. Maybe. But it it does feel weird in that last spot. I don't know if you guys felt the same thing, but it felt like maybe Duggan wasn't aware that there was supposed to be a spot with him being kicked. Mm. And so he leaves and Cat has to, like, improvise, oh, he's not worth it or something. Or... Cap was improvising the spot and Duggan just didn't notice him or something like that. I don't know. It just felt like Cat is clearly expecting to actually kick him. Yeah. And Duggan just walks off. So, it doesn't even like look at him to no, do it. Because he's not yeah, because he doesn't ever seem to actually look his way. Yeah. So I could see it being le- legitimately he didn't actually realize it was happening. Yeah. He kind of looks down. Because <laughs> I remember we first watching the match together, I was commenting, I was like, oh, it's actually good how was actually selling his leg being helped out and then <laughs> 10 seconds later he runs to the ring and starts kicking so like never mind yeah <laughs> had it and then lost it yep yep maybe he's like you know what i came in to save him from being beaten up mm-hmm. why do anything else i was like all right well it wasn't it wasn't the ending i expected but you know it did make me think about it a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. did we have Bruce miller on last year's show we we had him on 98 i think yeah 98 i don't no, think it was sure. it wasn't on 99 because 98, he had flourishes of good bits in there. He had the great slide just too short to, you know, attack. Yeah, it was funny, yeah. But I felt what was missing in that match was the middle parts of every section. Mm-hmm. There's no flow from spot to spot. Even with Perry Saturn, who I think is a really good wrestler, he just, just couldn't quite pull it together. This is definitely a nice improvement on that, even if the match is full of constant interference and a very long ref bump and a lot of nonsense. 
when it's just a match, I thought it flowed really well. They seem like they have good chemistry. Mm-hmm. I know Storm, up until literally very recently, was running a wrestling academy. So it's not hard to see him doing a sort of DDP thing, helping people like Miller walk through a match really well. I would be curious to see a Miller match from like just before this and see how they match up. Yeah. Like, is there a difference between that for sure? Is it just that he's improved or is it that he's working with a guy who's better about yeah. working with an inexperienced guy? It's yeah. probably 50 50 to be fair, yeah. but it'd be interesting to see that for comparison. I get a weird Kurt Angle vibe from Lance Storm. Like, the original, like, his first season. Mm-hmm. Where he's very formal and respect me and the three eyes and patriotic all that. Yeah. for yeah. his country and stuff. So yeah, you know, I, I saw him more of a, like a traditional wrestler. A lot of moves were clean and and simple, but mm-hmm. yeah, effective. Yeah, I think that's what Storm is generally known for. Is that like you said, very clean, very crisp. Everything he does, he clearly knows exactly how to do it. As an opponent, you want to wrestle with him because like, there's like no fear that he's not going to do the, the move correctly. Very safe. No flash, sure, yeah. but again, no risk mm-hmm. <laughs> or less risk. Because he even does a nice springboard dropkick into the ring, which mm-hmm. is really good. Yeah. When I watched him before, trying to compare it to Shinjiro Itani doing his dropkicks. So yeah, it looked really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do like the cat. I do love his funkin' boxing. (laughs) Honestly, they could have ended the thing after those undercuts and did that um, split punch. That's a good point to stop. (laughs) Because in the very beginning, I was like, when they were talking about the election stuff, I'm like, I elect not to watch this match. (laughs) Lance has got a point. Let's go. But the whole thing, like that lady, I wanted to see the cat dance. And every time he started doing it, they cut away. (laughs) No. There was a lot of unique stuff in this. A lot of memorable things Mm -hmm. for me. Definitely better than the first match, in my opinion. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I thought this was nothing exceptional, but fine. I think Storm did a really good job with his story here, showing how his aggravation at the crowd distracted him to get the cat openings. And Cat got to show off a variety of kicks this time and seemed a lot sharper in the ring than back in 1998. Definitely a confidence thing. He's Yeah. He's put it together into an actual style. Yes. Now, where before he was, uh, I've got a lot of character, I have a few kicks, but I don't really know how to meld it all together. Yes. In this match, it all clicks mm-hmm. as a consistent act. Yeah, yeah. Still, I felt like there wasn't a ton to this match. And there's no real build to Storm's leg hold finisher to make it make sense why Cat immediately gives up. True. That would make sense if Storm had spent the entire match brutalizing Cat's leg or something, but without it, it just doesn't really quite work that way. Duggan's storyline was genuinely interesting, though, and All Concerned performed that pretty well. Even if it makes for a bit of a screwy finish, I actually thought that it elevated the match a bit, as they did a good job bringing out some more emotion from it. It would have been a little stronger if Cat didn't jump right back in, though. Mm-hmm. Decent match, but if you're not going to DQ people for obvious interference, why even have DQ rules? Yeah. This kind of weirdly boring with not anything exciting happening on the Night of the Thunders, as far as, like, tile changing and such. Mm-hmm. So, the match sin that Ernest Miller has is him against Mike Sanders, or as I'll call him Colonel Sanders, since you were my joke. <laughs> <laughs> where they're fighting for the commissioner position of WCW. In a uh, fun little stark footnote, since we're in the last stark anyways, the first person to appear as part of the invasion 
is in fact Lance Storm. He okay. runs in the ring on a Raw and super kicks Perry Saturn. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So he's the, he's the first, I guess, invader or defector, we want to say, for the invasion. He's he's the sign of the coming storm. Yes. <laughs> Backstage, an ambulance pulls up, and that '70s guy, Mike Awesome, steps out. Tony builds up Awesome's upcoming ambulance match against Bam Bam Bigelow, and we cut to <sighs> Buff Bagwell. Nobody doesn't deserve this. Bagwell, in bowler hat, says that he's the new backstage interviewer because WCW wanted to draw a rating. He's on pay-per-view. Ratings are more of a Nitro thing, man. Bagwell brings in the filthy animals, who he says dress so cool. The animals are Conan, in leopard print lined coat and cowboy hat, Kidman, in generic black outfit, Tigress, in white top and short shorts, and somebody's 12-year-old brother wearing what appears to be the torso of a Chewbacca cosplay. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Ratings. Oh, wait, that's an unmasked Ray Mysterio. <laughs> yes. He really is wearing a Chewbacca without the helmet. I swear, it? it's the fuzziest coat ever. It just covers everything except his head and neck. Yeah. I know. And it looks like two sizes too big for him, too. Yes. It really does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This promo's about 70% dirty jokes, so I'm not playing it. Bagwell basically cuts the animals promo for them, talking about how Jarrett went to Sanders to get their upcoming match changed, but not really. Kidman makes gay jokes, and Conan jokes about Jarrett's stroke, meaning something other than connections with the boss. I thought this was a pretty bad segment, if I'm honest. Yeah. Do dirty jokes pass as promos now? Is that 2000s thing, I guess? Yeah. I guess that's the state of things. It ends really weird, too. It kind of looks like Ray wants to speak, but then Bagwell just slaps hands with him, and Ray awkwardly walks off when it's clear that Bagwell's just throwing to the next bit. Yeah. Did it, did it seem like that it to you guys, Absolutely, yeah. It didn't, didn't feel like it ended where it was supposed to, yeah. <laughs> Segway says what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like Ray's, like, holding out his hand, like, hey, hand me the microphone or bring the microphone to me, and Bagwell's just like, slap hands with you. <laughs> What's up, Ray? <laughs> Ray's like, fine, I'll walk off. Yeah. I'll take my Chewbacca coat and leave. He might have been cold. I, I don't know. Yeah. Good gosh. They may, they may have spent all the money on the pyro and not on the heating with the backstage area. <laughs> it would make sense. I was very surprised when they switched to the other people in the hallway. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's a very sudden transition then to Reno and Vito walking with their manager, Marie, when Sanders and the natural-born thrillers call out to him. It's extremely hard to understand anybody in the echoey hallway, but I think Sanders is telling Reno that he can come back and join them, and Reno and Vito are telling him off. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a case of they're relying 100% on the audio from the camera, which is yeah. in front of Reno and Vito, but you're supposed to hear Sanders and the others like 10 feet away down the hallway. Yeah, and it's a super echoey hallway, too. Yes. So, But there's no audio in URL, so it's just one source, and they're mm -hmm. too far away from it. Yeah. We cut to wrestler Crowbar and his manager, Daphne. Crowbar, who sadly is not, to my knowledge, David Flair's gold crowbar come to life, sadly, is wearing a 70s outfit akin to Mike Awesome's, and is upset that Daphne doesn't want to do that. Daphne says something about the 70s gimmick being like a poop sandwich and making Crowbar soft. That might not be right. It took time to make out because her voice is in that pitch range that only dogs can actually hear. Yeah, she's going for a real, like, Betty Boop thing, which is oh confusing. Gosh. It sure does make the show seem real when the performers are talking openly about their gimmicks, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. 
Crowbar says he's going to retain his title, keep his 70s clothes, and meet her to party later. Then he walks off and gets blasted in the face by a fire extinguisher wielded by Terry Funk. I will at least admit that Crowbar's 70s clothes look better than Funk's circus performer pants. <laughs> yeah, I've never missed that look, ever. That's just how he dresses. Funk continues blasting Crowbar with the fire extinguisher, and we hear a lot of sound clipping. I'm not sure if maybe Crowbar was wearing a microphone and the extinguisher was getting to it, maybe? Oh, uh, maybe. Daphne starts screaming at the top of her lungs, and a referee arrives, and I guess we're starting the match. So our third match is Crowbar with Daphne and Daphne's incessant screaming versus Terry Funk for Crowbar's WCW Hardcore Championship. The referee for this match is Scott James, formerly Scott Armstrong. He was previously a professional wrestler for WCW and is the brother of fellow wrestlers Steve, Brad, and Brian James. Steve and Brad, also going by Armstrong, appeared on prior Starcades. Brian is the most famous as Road Dog Jesse James in the WWF. Scott actually performed as a wrestler for WCW until March 2000, so he's quite new as a referee. Is the Armstrong James thing, is it like a Sheen as Devez thing? They just some switch to Sheen, some say it's Devez? I guess so, yeah. Good thing they don't try to, like, combine them. <laughs> <laughs> James Strong? Oh, no, I was like, like Sheen Stevez. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sheen is? <laughs> there you go. Just to Sheen? <laughs> that sounds like a I don't know, like a beauty treatment, doesn't it? Yeah. The Estachine. The Cobar seventies gimmick thing is just carried over from him being friends with Mike Awesome. Oh. And I guess being convinced to try it out because we have to talk about people's gimmicks openly to escape his dad, I guess. Terry Funk very recently returned during a segment on I think it was Thunder. Funk returned to reinvigorate the languishing hardcore division. If you need proof of that one of the previous champions in the year 2000 was Eric Bischoff. <sighs> yeah. In case you're wondering, Eric Bischoff won the title and gave it to somebody, so he didn't lose it. Yeah. It's, who's surprised at that? No. Funk uses semi-trailers and other backstage stuff to beat Crowbar up, including sending him for a ride on an equipment box, which looked kind of fun, actually. Funk sets Crowbar on a semi-truck loading ramp and detaches it, dropping it, and Crowbar sells an injury to an arm that in no way could even remotely have been hurt by that. <laughs> It's like, it's not under it or anything. No. It's just, he falls and grabs the arm that wasn't even below his body. You're like, how how did that hurt? I'm not sure. Magic. Arthritis. Yeah, there you go. Tony brings up Funk's multiple retirements, the first being in 1983, the year of the first Starcade. Yeah. Incidentally, Funk's most recent retirement was in 2016, but he actually had a match in 2017 in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I went to college. Oh. Terry Funk is really bad at retiring. <laughs> yeah. I saw him at an indie show in the area. I want to say it's like 2003. Uh, it was him and Jerry Lawler, and it felt really weird seeing that at that point. Yeah. And that was, you know, 13 years before that last retirement. Yeah. I actually kind of like Terry Funk. Like, I know some of his history with him and Mankind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You learn a little bit about the guy behind his wrestling persona, and, you know, he's got like a... A good heart and everything, but he's oh, yeah. just uh, like a covert legend. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like he's like flashy or anything, but he's just like a mainstay. Yeah, absolutely. They fight inside a semi-trailer, and Crowbar takes over with a car grill that's in there for some reason, and beats Funk up. Daphne will not stop screaming. I was getting a headache watching this match. Oh, yeah. 
Funk throws Crowbar out of the trailer through a table, and if I were Crowbar, I would have let Unconsciousness take me to escape the noise. But he doesn't, so they continue fighting with a car door that's there for some reason. They trade off slamming each other's heads in a building door. Adorable. And Crowbar... (laughs) Yeah, adorable. (laughs) (laughs) And Crowbar tries to handcuff Funk, but Funk gets them and cuffs Crowbar instead. In the front, where their long chain basically leaves him totally mobile. 100%. Oh, the brutality, Tony says, but as Tone says, he's trying not to laugh. (laughs) Crowbar forgets how his arms and hands work, so Funk beats him up with a chair and car door as they move towards the ring. Daphne keeps screaming. Funk puts Crowbar on a table, but Daphne rolls him back off, so Funk tries to choke her in a tremendously uncomfortable spot. A bit. Blessedly, Crowbar saves very quickly, getting Funk on the table and diving over the ropes on him. It gets two. Both are in the ring, and Daphne chucks a chair at Funk and celebrates with the exact same screams that she's been making all match. Lexi Luger? (laughs) A little bit, yeah. (laughs) It gets Crowbar, too, but Funk nails Crowbar with the chair a few times and pile drives him on the car door for the three-count, the win, and the title. Funk uses the ref to drag himself to his feet and walks out with his belt as Daphne helps Crowbar take off the handcuffs. Thoughts on this one? Uh, Let's see. Here's my summary. Chair shots. Screaming. Crowbar is too dumb to block. <laughs> three good spots. Turn which three spots they were, even, honestly. I can appreciate the gimmickry of the pile driver on the car door, I guess maybe that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And he is a good, safe, but dangerous looking pile driver, to be fair. Yeah. Funk's been doing pile drivers probably at this point for 40 years, so yeah. Hopefully he's good by, by, by now. Probably the second one is the dive out of the ring. That's. Proving how weak the handcuff thing was, if you can easily dive out of the ring using his hands. Maybe I have it for the tease of the spot, where Terry Funk's going to fall out of the trailer, all of like two feet backwards. Yeah. Maybe those are my three spots. That's about all I have. I have to try to remember which ones they are. That, that tells you how little you actually care about. And you just summarize it, too. It's not like I haven't, I haven't heard about it, either. Yeah. It's like you're asking me for the you summarize it. Here, I thought you were going to say that you like the part where Crowbar's like, hit me some more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my problem with that whole thing is they're clearly trying to do the Royal Rumble 2000 match with Mick Foley and The Rock, mm-hmm. which involved The Rock handcuffing Mick Foley's hands behind his back. Yeah. Like a sane person would do. And then Mick Foley taking 12 unprotected chair shots, which a sane person would not do. Yeah. And getting mercy from that, whereas it's just like, hey, look at Kurwa, take some more shots to the head. If we're sort of laughing and not really bothered by it, it's yeah. not. The screaming is definitely the worst part of the match for me. Because you can't ignore Because even like look away, you hear it. The only way I could see it being excused is if the first like third half of the match, she kept doing that. And Terry Funk had some sort of line to her, like, you know, I'm half deaf, I can't hear you anyways. And then she stopped. But that didn't happen, so there's no payoff to her screaming. Mm-hmm. And she didn't stop screaming. Yeah. So no, neither way it could have possibly been okay happened. There's there's precisely one spot where it's kind of funny where she she's been screaming and then she stops for a few moments and then we cut to a view of her up close and she notices the cameraman and screams in shock at noticing him that close to her. Yeah, that was that okay, I was like, that. okay, that was funny, mm-hmm. but it wasn't worth the entire rest of the match screaming at the top of her lungs. Yeah, it's a lot of awkward fighting and chair shots and then they get in the ring. I'd like to like to dive out of the ring into the table. It's nice. But then it just goes back to Terry Funk getting his power and winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't my favorite, by far. <laughs> Pretty energetic, considering it's Funk. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
I felt like this was a Halloween Horror Nights, like <laughs> like a haunted loading dock, <laughs> like, yeah, like where people are just beating each other up in the background, and the screams in the background kind of give me that feel. Like you're waiting in line, you're approaching this uh, Fallout area or whatever the theme is that yeah. year. <laughs> You, you hear, like, people screaming in the background, and that's what I was getting from that. I actually turned my volume way down, just so it wasn't, like, so jarring. So the only thing that, that stood out was, like, the chair hits. <laughs> yeah. I did like the prop direction. I, I'm surprised I didn't use, like, all the, the mic cables and everything to really tie people up and do other things when he's in, they're inside the loading area. I did say audibly, we, when they were pushing them on the cart. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, that actually looked really entertaining. He doesn't push him into anything no. either. He just, like, pushes him along, and you're like, well, that looked fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like, it's better than, I mean, I don't know if it's better is the word, but, you know, it reminded me of where they're just tearing apart, like, the break area. Right. Yeah, last year. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I think they wanted to get a little bit of that, but we got a hallway shot. <laughs> now we got the loading docks. Mm-hmm. We're going all out this year. Had there was no giant surge display. Yeah. Like last yeah. year. That would have made better. <laughs> but I, I thought T-Funk uh, should win for this year. In fact, he didn't bring anyone that was screaming. There you go. I definitely was getting a headache watching this match. But even without Daphne just constantly yelling in a way that I'm sure must have hurt her throat after a while, mm-hmm. this was not that interesting to me. It just moves from contrived spot to contrived spot with conveniently placed prop after conveniently placed prop some of which just have no business even being backstage at a wrestling show who just puts spare car doors in the arena yeah yeah true and why is a car's front grill sitting randomly in a semi-truck i like that they had random props (laughs) (laughs) but but no storyline other than they were just mysteriously there why is this stuff here is a question that you really should answer had Crowbar trying to act like he was totally incapacitated by wearing handcuffs with such a long chain that they afforded him nearly complete range of motion, and this just started out ridiculous and got worse as it went on. It would have worked if he was cuffed behind his back, but not like this. No. It's like, I mean, I don't know, what, probably a three-foot chain, two-foot chain or something? Like, yeah. Could have jump rope with it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. At least they make terry funk pay for that like he does choke him at one point yeah Mm -hmm. so you know like okay there's a little retribution there a combination of silly and boring punctuated by ear-shattering screams this one was not fun for me funk would defend the title in january at sin but it is january so (laughs) terry funk loses the hardcore title to ming and then something really weird happens Ming is not under contract at this point when he's made Harker champion. And who's at the Royal Rumble but Ming, under his old name as Haku. <laughs> and no, he did not lose the title before he left. He just left. He apparently, he turned an indie show and gave the title back to Barbarian, who I think was still employed there at the time. <laughs> like, here, I don't want this. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so they lose their hardcore champion to the WWE at that point. Which is notable because... The WCW Harker title is one of only three titles, to my understanding, that never appeared in WWF. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that one didn't appear. The television title didn't appear. And a title we haven't seen yet, the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team titles also never made it to WWF. Hmm. We go back to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is with Team Canada. Storm, members of Team Canada, I am appalled. What the hell were you thinking attacking the great hacksaw Jim Duggan like you did out there moments ago? 
First of all, you tell this guy he's got a home in Team Canada, and then the next time he tries to help you, you sucker him. I think you got to realize, Gene, a leopard can't change his spots. Once American, always American. I realized a month ago that Jim Duggan's days in Team Canada were numbered. In this business, we're numbered. We used him to get one last job done, because he's nothing but a stupid, gullible American. But now that we've got rid of the trash, Team Canada can move forward, grow bigger and stronger. Mark my words, Gene, I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All right. Gene, don't blame, your, don't blame Canada, blame yourself. Oh. <laughs> uh, Gene follows that up with a dirty joke that I won't repeat. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Storm excellently conveys the Duggan story in mere moments and does a great job of getting across just how much he was manipulating the poor guy. Very efficient promo skills, Lance. Mm-hmm. Just uh, fast forward as soon as he's done talking to avoid Guns and Gene trying two different ways to utterly ruin a segment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's hilarious hearing her horribly screw up the South Park movie line. Yeah, totally botches her joke. And the thing is, that's her catchphrase. It's not like the first time she's tried this. Oh, wow. This is how she ends the promos multiple times. Hmm. It's just this time she just completely forgot the order the words go in. Oh, wow. Thank you for cutting at the time you did. Uh, I kind of groaned. Yeah, there there was no way I was I was playing that. Oh no, I thought it was very uncharacteristic of, of Mean Gene. Yeah, they basically do that to him in like 2000. I think becomes his new gimmick. Unfortunately, oh. that they're like, "Hey, Mean Gene will suddenly be a dirty old man," and you're like, "Where did this come from?" There are hints of it early in his career, but it definitely is accentuated. It honestly would have been funnier if he said, "Get off my lawn." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Gene Oakland's a backstage interviewer. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't earlier when it was Buff Bagwell? Well, they got two of them, because it's just too much work. Sh- sure, we'll go with that. We go to Lex Luger's room, where he's unpacking his bag of gear, and produces a set of brass knuckles, for once not wrapped in tape. Oh. He says that Goldberg's next, not him. Tony notes that those brass knuckles will actually be legal in this match with Goldberg, because it's a no-disqualification match. It's actually a no-holds-barred match, but I guess that's the same thing. Yeah. A no holds barred match is no DQ now. Yes. Is hitting someone with a chair a hold? Yes, because you're holding the chair. I guess. (laughs) We go back out to the ring for our next match. So our fourth match is Big Vito and Reno with Marie versus Chronic, Brian Adams and Brian Clark. Referee for this match is Jamie Tucker. Going into this point a couple months back... There have been a few between Big Vito and Reno, because Reno had joined the Natural Born Thrillers faction and was working with them. However, then a big soap opera plot revelation, which I think is a carryover from Russo storylines, happens, where Reno is actually Big Vito's brother. Dun, dun, dun. The Young and the Wrestlers. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yes. That leads to Vito trying to make peace between them. So they're doing this storyline where they're trying to be a cohesive unit now that they're related by blood, but it's not clear if Reno is torn between his loyalties to the group or him or not. Chronic, meanwhile, are just two hired goons, apparently. Knockoff Godfather music leads Vito, Reno, and Marie to the ring. Chronic has generic rock. Adams grabs a microphone and says that Chronic is doing the job before being paid this time, but he expects to be paid in full as soon as they're done asking if Marie understands, which implies that she was the one that hired them. What? Reno and Vito look at her, and she says that she has no idea what Adams is talking about. 
I noticed at this point, referee Jamie Tucker kind of looks like William H. Macy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chronic attack Vito and Reno from behind and throw Vito out of the ring so they can beat up Reno. Vito back in to save, and Reno drop kicks Adams out of the ring so he and Vito can trade off against Clark as tag rules impose themselves. Vito gets a two count off a nice power slam and leg drop, and Reno off a kick and a Vito neckbreaker, but Clark counters Vito's arm wavy strikes with an underhook suplex for two. Meanwhile, Adams talks to Maria, and she maintains that she's not their client. Vito comes out to attack him, but he grabs Vito and holds him for a Clark flipping senton off the apron. Really awkward, overcomplicated Russian leg sweep into the barricade by Clark on Vito. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, just just throw him into it. <laughs> That's yeah. easier. Clark batters Vito with a chair, which is apparently totally fine with the referee. But Reno coming over to stop it is apparently not fine, and the ref warns him to go back to his corner. Repeatedly. Which rules matter? <laughs> back in, we get a weird peck hold by Adams. <laughs> But Vito punches free and fights back until a double shoulder block by both chronic guys takes him down. The natural-born thrillers, led by Sanders, come out on the ramp to watch as chronic trade off beating him up and cut off his attempts to tag. There's a nice sequence of dodges and counters that leads up to a double big boot to Vito, but then a really clumsy spot where Clark and Vito simultaneously try to flying body press each other. (laughs) They crawl for their corners and tag Adams and Reno, but Reno hits his finisher, roll the dice, on Vito, and goes for a pin. The ref is understandably confused, but Chronic tell him to count the pin, so he counts to three. So do Reno and Vito win for the pin, or does Chronic win because Vito got pinned? I'm not really sure. <laughs> the latter. Oh, okay. Go with that. Sure. Marie gets in, questioning Reno. And he quietly goes and gets a bag of money and throws it to Chronic, then goes to join the natural-born thrillers, calling them his familia. Back in the ring, Clark hits his finisher, the meltdown, on Vito, and Chronic hit a slam called the High Times on him as well. As Maria checks on Vito, we cut to Sanders, who says something that was undoubtedly clever, but no one turns the sound on from that camera, so it's lost to history. <laughs> Thoughts on the- <laughs> Dang it, WCW. <laughs> Thoughts on this one. <laughs> so we had Big Vito in the previous show, and I sort of gave him a pass because it's really earning his career at this point. That was sort of proving ground for them. This mm-hmm. is an early spotlight for him. It's been a year, and it's not a whole lot better. Nah. He does his weird wavy arm bit as he does move. It's, it's like misdirection. Like, you can't see his face, you can't read his expression. I think he's just, he's like, well, this is martial arts poses. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah. It reminds me of the bit in I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker, where they're fighting. I feel like it's Isaac Hayes. And they start to do a karate fight. He's like, you know karate. He's like, you do. You know, just pretend? Like, sure. And they just start <laughs> waving their arms and yelling. <laughs> 2000 the year I started watching wrestling again. So I saw a lot of Chronic, and they never got interesting at all yeah. to me. They're not terrible. My note was Chronic have two to four good moves. And again, I can't name all of them, but you know. They definitely exist somewhere in there. It's a yeah. general summary of their, their career. Uh, my biggest note was, yeah, match sacrifice for story and a non-finish, I, I guess? Yeah. You could have attacked him and just walked off while Chronic pinned him, but... Yeah, I mean, they do their moves on him anyway. And you just stay down from the roll of dice, the whole betrayal thing, but it's just... You go to pin him, and it's just it doesn't yeah. count or anything. Yeah, it's a very strange ending. They clearly think that the 
story of who's paying off Chronic is going to cover any deficits in the ring. But the matches is interesting. Chronic has nothing interesting about them, really. It's weird they dress in vinyl now all of a sudden. <laughs> it's like, so being intense and wearing vinyl is what potheads are like to WCW? Because like, they're all about weed, but they work out all the time, and I don't get it. They're extremely motivated weed users. I guess, yeah. Famously, people that are high on weed are really dedicated to working out and pursuing their jobs with a high degree of dedication, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, what about being a pothead makes you dress like an extra in The Matrix? <laughs> I honestly don't get it. It's the 2000s. It's probably just they were smoking it while they were watching The Matrix, and that was like, hey, man, that would be a great idea, right? Yeah. Give me more Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> That would explain a lot of Dives Hippie writing. Yes. Maybe it's short for chronic pain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just not a really interesting match, and it's just all the soap opera stuff is not extremely exciting either. Okay. I really just have more notes on uh, my thoughts rather than the actual match. I was trying to figure out what the storyline was for this. Thank you, Al, for for explaining some of it. (laughs) Yeah. And I kept on saying, is this a no DQ match? Double the money? What's going on? They had some holy phantom kip camera angles where they just had some kicks that just show up out of nowhere. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing, the remarkable spot was, uh, do we really think that Vito can do a double takedown? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> There's some awkwardness, but I guess they were going for a mafia angle and, you know, where your ties to the family are more important than family. <laughs> <laughs> Familia. Well, there's the family, capital F, and then family, case F. Yeah. And the finishing for me was like, is it possible that Reno's the legal man, too? Or (laughs) That's true, yeah. Actually, he literally can't possibly get that pinfall. Yeah. true. Yeah. Very good point. I hadn't actually thought of it from that angle before, but yeah. (laughs) Well, I think they wanted to make it personal, and I think that that's what their goal was, and they did that. Yeah. It's just weird that Cronin didn't try to pin him after her. Yeah. He still could, I guess. Yeah. This was an okay match. A little slow and confusing on the DQ rules, but that just seems to be a theme tonight. The story is simultaneously kind of interesting and very perplexing. I like the mystery client angle, actually. It added a layer of intrigue to the match, but how it actually works is weird. I'm guessing that the idea is that even Adams questioning Maria is part of the job, that Adams knew from the get-go that it was Reno. Yeah. But I'm a little unclear on that, or if he just actually isn't sure who their client is, because as he noted, he was baked. True. (laughs) To the match's credit, while Chronic and Reno do fight early on, they don't actually spend that much time doing so, so you can kind of say they just took a little pain to sucker Vito in, I guess. I'm just not really sure why it took so long for Reno to turn on Vito. Why not just let the match start and immediately hit roll the dice and let Chronic win? And yeah, how does that final pinball work anyway? (laughs) Uh, They had a good idea here, honestly, but just a bit of a weird execution. Still, a pretty basic match, but acceptable. Not knowing the background for that match just killed me. It would have helped to have, like, a more detailed... They have been doing... I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but they have been doing, like, short video clips before some of the matches during the entrances, because the entrances are boring tonight. Oh, yeah. They don't really tend to reveal that much of anything, so they're not that useful. Yeah, pretty much. 
I think even even kind of understanding a little bit more about what's going on this match just wasn't that interesting. Not really, no. I mean, there was enough tropes for me to kind of work my way through it, but, you know, at the same time, yeah. like... Yeah. <laughs> can't I get gonna, you. You can't really get invested in it. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, this leads to a match between Big Vito and Reno at Sin, of course. Okay. Somewhere between now and Sin, Chronic are faces. Okay. That happened somehow between those two points in time. <laughs> For some reason, Big Vito was not one of the people that they tried to buy his contract out when the company went under. They saw those arm wavy motions and were like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> so he ended up joining the company, but in 2005. Oh, okay. Meanwhile, they did buy out Reno's contract, whereupon they sent him to develop Mental, and he left in December of 2001. So, oh. Never appearing once on television. Oh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. It's like, oh, glad you bought his contract. I got to do absolutely nothing with him. We go back to Gene Okerlund, who's with Three Count. Moore is still selling from the ladder match. I appreciate your dedication, man, but it's been like a half hour. If you're still doubled over in pain, you should probably be at the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. All right, the Shannon Moore, Shane Helms, collectively known as Three Count. I want to congratulate the two of you on that spectacular performance out there. In that uh, ladder match. Now, I do know for a fact that uh, both of you have got to be exhausted, but I think the one question that's on everybody's mind, which one of you is going to be facing Lieutenant Local, a.k.a. Chavo Guerrero, for the WCW Cruiserweight title? Gene, the way Sugar Shane Helms sees it, the way Shannon Moore sees it, three count won the match. Three counts got the contract. Three count is the number one contender to the Cruiserweight title, and Chavo's got to deal with that. But, but, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry. You guys have an interview here? Of course they do. Do I know you guys? Hey, wait, you paid in my house last week. That was the worst job I have ever... Oh, wait, 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 my bad, my bad. You're the two count, right? Three count. Three count. Whoa, whoa, take it easy. I heard you guys want a ladder match to be the number one contender to my Cruiserweight title, right? Well, since you're both next in line, why don't you take a gander at what you're going to be fighting for? Like that? Shiny? Hey, hey! What the hell are you doing? Come on! Show Get him out of here! What the... You think you got what it takes to face me? That's the working man's belt! And I don't think you've worked hard enough yet! Security! Indignant Gene Okerlund is indignant. <laughs> yes. I'm still a bit confused at exactly how two people got to be number one contender off a match meant to determine the singular number one contender, but this did do a fair job of getting me interested in seeing Chavo fight both of them, at least. Interesting that there wasn't even a sniff of a dissension angle in there with three count either. Yeah. I would have expected to see them starting to argue or at least implying there might be a problem since only one can ultimately be champion, but it was kind of nice to not just throw right into that. Yeah, yeah. I like that they renamed the belt the Working Man's Belt. Yeah. I thought that would have been great <laughs> if they had just renamed it. Yeah, it's not much to relate to this. It's just setting up Chavo when yeah. fight them. Yeah. Does a perfectly acceptable job of it, but... Yeah. My notes say, sweet Hanson interview, good renaming, this is a cartoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Everything's so over the top. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We go back to Buff Bagwell, who is with Lash LaRue as Corporal Cajun, The Wall as Sergeant Wall, and Hugh Morris as General Rection. A bunch of guys were rebranded as the Misfits in Action, or MIA, this year, and Morris became their leader with the rank of General, cutting a really stupid promo, in which he blamed the writers for his existing pun name, Hugh Morris, yep. 
and announced that he wanted to be called by his real name, Hugh G. Rection. 100% real, I swear. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. All concerned seem kind of embarrassed by the name pretty much immediately, so he pretty much just goes by General Rection. So the pun name is both stupid and entirely pointless. Chavo Guerrero Jr. used to be part of the group as Lieutenant Loco. Speaking of names, ignoring the most glaring one, you renamed the wall Sergeant A-Wall. Yes. But he's right there behind you. Yeah. He's not A-Wall. He's right there behind you. That's a little funny to think that he's the patriotic American soldier guy now when he debuted as the wall because he was with Berlin. <laughs> That's true. Representing the wall that separate East and West Berlin. Yeah. So I guess he found uh, love of country. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Or lost love of country for Germany, I guess. Maybe he's AWOL from Germany. Oh. It's still really stupid. Yes. It's extremely stupid. Yeah. What what you think about about that name, though, John? General Rection. I, I just... Um... Kept on hearing the uh, announcers, like, they enunciate it very, very harshly just to make sure they don't flub. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. But it totally rings WCW. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised having WWF do that either. No, no, especially during, like, the Attitude Era. Yeah, for sure. Hey, this is Buck Daddy backstage with MIAs and big, let me say big, General Rection. You know what? I was supposed to come out and talk about the U.S. title, U.N. franchise, but... What happened backstage with Chavo? I got to speak on this with three count. What's going on? Is this the beginning of the end of the MIAs? Wait, 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 wait. Who said we're splitting up? I didn't say you're splitting up, bro. I just wonder what's going on. Hey, Buff, this isn't about Chavo. This is about a guy coming out here week after week crying about Dominic DiNucci taught me 20 years ago. I need a stepping stone. I lost my meal ticket. This is about Starcade franchise. This is the U.S. title. I didn't fight for this thing for five months to let you use me as a stepping stone. The misfits are not stepping stones. And this is not about Chavo Guerrero. You know what? I got to believe him. Guess what? Tonight you'll see that big boy against franchise for the U.S. title. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Acting. Once this got direction, this was actually, I thought, a simple but very effective promo, mm -hmm. building up him not being willing to be seen as a stepping stone for someone else's rise, and wanting to be seen as a champion in his own right. The Chavo stuff detracts a little, maybe overcomplicating what could be a simple and powerful story, mm -hmm. but overall, this did work for me pretty well. Best promo so far. Yeah. He, he like, just gets shouty and emotional, and it's, it's pretty good, actually. Yep. Yeah. Not much, I'll say there's not much, there's zero nuance to it. Right, yeah. But it is, is what it is. Yeah. Our fifth match is Bam Bam Bigelow versus that 70s guy, Mike Awesome, in an ambulance match. The referee for this match is Billy Silverman. You win an ambulance match by putting your opponent in the ambulance and closing the doors. So the two were originally supposed to clash at Mayhem the month before, but Bam Bam, in an attempt to prove his hardcore cred, decides to tag Mike Awesome backstage and took him out so they didn't get to have that match. This, in turn, brought out the hardcore side of Mike Awesome, who had gone through several transitions since coming to the company. Basically, WCW spent a lot of money to get him to come leave ECW as their world champion without dropping the belt. They apparently paid an extra like five or six figures for that. And then weren't sure what to do with him. So he went from being Mike Awesome to the career killer Mike Awesome to the 
Fat Chick Thriller, Mike Awesome. Yep. Weirdly, upwards momentum going to that 70s guy, Mike Awesome. Marginal improvement, or at least a lateral yeah. move. It's weird. Yes. This is sort of they're trying to push him out of that, back to what he's supposed to be, or was originally. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> basically just a viz. They're trying to put him in a hardcore situation until he can segue out of this terrible character. Okay. Bigelow's entrance video is punctuated by shots of him thumping his chest in front of the words Jersey Shore. It looks really cheap. Oh, yeah. Awesome's entrance music, more generic rock, doesn't really scream 70s. Awesome beckons on the entrance ramp, and the ambulance drives out to park next to it. Awesome strips off his 70s clothes, so he's in his wrestling gear. Would have been less disturbing if he'd done that backstage. (laughs) He says Bam Bam will be going in the ambulance and charges the ring. Bigelow starts strong, but Awesome hits a rebound back elbow from the corner and clotheslines him over the ropes. They brawl outside, involving the barricades, ring post, ring bell, somebody's soda, a chair, and the ring apron, neither really getting the advantage. They fight over to the ambulance, and Awesome tries to put Bigelow in, but Bigelow elbows free and slams Awesome's shoulder in the door a few times until Awesome kicks him in the nuts. Bigelow shoves Awesome hard into the ambulance, but Awesome dodges a punch, and Bigelow's arm goes through the window. Great-looking spot, but even if the window was, I assume, gimmicked for safety, probably not the best one to do less than a year after Goldberg nearly lost his arm in a window spot. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Awesome does pull a great, holy crap, everybody, do you believe that kind of <laughs> face, though? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's really endearing there. Mm-hmm. Awesome uses the ambulance to beat Bigelow up, but Bigelow uses his chair to turn the tide as they randomly go back to the ring and the announcers are confused, as was I. Bigelow DDT, and he smacks Awesome right into the announce table as Silverman pointlessly yells at him in a no-disqualification match. The very polite DDT from Bam and Bigelow. Oh, right, yeah, he actually, uh, you, you see it sometimes to let the other guy know it's time to go down for the DDT. They'll, like, slap their back once or twice yeah. to give them the timing. Once you see it, you, you don't unsee it. And yeah, Bigelow very clearly does this this nice gentle slap a couple times on, on Awesome's back, very clearly timed. Like, we are going down for the DDT now. <laughs> it's very, very nice. <laughs> would you join me in the DDT? I sure. mean, don't get me wrong. I would want someone to do that for me if I oh, were doing the, if I were taking a DDT. And I also don't want to take a DDT, but... Yeah, I've taken with not fun. Yeah. Whole <laughs> <laughs> thought of story there. Bigelow moves the stairs, but gets whipped into them himself. Doesn't rate on the Cena scale as they were freestanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bigelow's arm is bloody, so whatever gimmicking they did didn't make the window entirely safe. Awesome tries to send Bigelow through a table, but Bigelow counters to toss him into it instead. They head back to the ambulance and climb up on the hood, and Bigelow goes to the roof and rips off the safety lights to hit Awesome but Awesome gets them and hits Bigelow to send him falling through the roof into the ambulance, giving Awesome the win. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was good. It's not exactly a super nuanced match. It's definitely a lot of fighting in weapons at the ringside area, then by the ambulance, then back to the ringside area. I thought the actual action, though, was good. There was less of a disconnect for me between them fighting and using weapons in gimmicky ways than there was in the hardcore match earlier. Mm-hmm. That one felt like they just weaponed directly backstage and they had them, whereas this is, hey, we're at ringside, here's all the stuff we can actually use. Yeah, it's actual things that would reasonably be in the area that they are fighting in, yeah. Right. Yeah. I like that when it seemed to start going his way, Mike Awesome tried to go right to the ambulance to try and win the match. Sort of play with the story of the match where he thought he had the advantage, so might as well win it quickly rather than mm-hmm. going through a long 
fight. So I'm actually less bothered by the going back to the ring thing. Because if you're watching it, it does actually flow pretty well for me. I know you have to accept that they stay there, but basically Mike Awesome has things go against him when they're by the ambulance. So he runs halfway on the ramp to grab the chair. Bigelow hits him, and he starts pushes them back towards the ring, and they start fighting there. Hmm. So he goes halfway to the ring to get a weapon and is knocked the other halfway as part of a fight. He didn't just casually walk to the back and they start fighting there again. They at least connected it, I thought, well enough for me. Yeah. There's a reason why they got there. It's not just, let's stop and I'll walk back now. True. Yeah. I I get what you're saying on the match strategy for Mike Awesome. I think I would have liked it better if maybe he just 100% just sprinted back to the ring to make that clearer. Right. Just having him like just totally flee back would make it a little bit of a clearer storyline thing rather than them just being like, we're going back to the ring now. Mm-hmm. It was which what it felt like to me. I thought it just took the focus off the ambulance, which was the unique part of the match. Mm-hmm. So It made sense for me from a timeline to have him go back to the ring where there's less risk of them both being eliminated immediately. Mm-hmm. Especially after they both have taken damage being, you know, slammed against the ambulance. I think it's important to just say we need to wear them down. And it's not a but people call walk and brawl where you're clearly not really fighting. You're walking slowly <laughs> and sort of casually punching each other in the shoulders or the back or something. There was no rakes, no, but no back rakes. Oh, yes. Yes. No back. Yeah. Yeah. I relabeled this one on my sheet. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow versus physics. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't know if the glass break was intentional or the effect on, on him was, you know, planned or whatnot but it did he did genuinely look like he was selling it or like there was some some issue mm-hmm. nothing like he wasn't like gushing blood or anything so i wasn't like afraid of him losing yeah. a finger or anything but hey when you gimmick those you use what's called sugar glass safety yeah. glass but it's made it's not fused in the same way your glasses like when we watch movies when someone throws into a window and it shatters into a million tiny pieces yeah that's sugar glass real glass breaks into five or six big shards that are dangerous so when punching, it didn't shatter the window, but he punched his way through. So it's possible there was some glass and maybe like some sort of sheen or plastic on it. That's why he punched through. Yeah. It's like punching through heavy cardboard almost. It's kind of a sharp edge. But he definitely cut himself on the glass. Yeah, I'm agree. Even if it's Lexan or whatever, some yeah. made up or pre-cut. You know, yeah. There's always- it wasn't sugar glass because it didn't shatter completely. Yeah. yeah. The, the faux aluminum that he fell through <laughs> mm. at, at the top. <laughs> I actually paused it and tried to frame advance. And there's like particle board that flips up when he, when he mm-hmm. goes in there. I was trying to look for that. There's a little bit. Yeah, you can just, just catch a glimpse of it. It's a little triangle of it. You know, on further thought, I think they avoided the ambulance because they probably were afraid of breaking whatever gimmick they were going <laughs> to. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. Know? They talk about, oh, those lights are really hard to rip off. I'm like, he's doing it with one hand. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's no bolts on it. So. <laughs> At least the big finish with falling to the top is such a hard spot to get to that you couldn't... They didn't, like, stop and work around it, obviously, to avoid no, it. No, yeah. It's, they did a good job of having the gimmicked part of the ambulance be on the top, so it's hard to accidentally muck that up because, yes. I mean, it's WCW. You know if there's any chance of mucking it up, they would. Yes. <laughs> the camera guy would have accidentally stepped in and fallen through. Yes. Like a tiger trap would have been hilarious, but would have ruined the finish. <laughs> Cameraman's up there getting a shot. Wah! <laughs> That would be great. It would be. For me, this was a pretty basic brawl without much in the way of notable spots, aside from the window punch. Despite this being short, I just kind of felt like they were padding the match out with a little bit extra walking and and doing some extra things that 
added to the length without actually adding to the content or story for me. Still, I feel like I'm saying this a lot tonight, but it was all right. Mike Awesome's expressions were really good fun, and the ending spot was great. I'm sure an ambulance roof is built more sturdily than that, but it was still a nice surprising end to the match. I liked his reaction to when the glass broke originally, but then also when he gets the second hit and makes Spiggle fall through, he has this great bit of realization on his face. When he's like, he realizes he won because he fell into the ambulance. Yeah. He didn't catch it right away. He has to think about it. Wait, I won. And they like, right no, there. Yeah, it's, yeah. Awesome is actually pretty awesome in this match. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. He has just great reactions to things. And that was, that was keeping me in the match. His reactions to things were keeping me in the match when I was a little not that into the actual action at points. Just his personality was actually really, really good. My one regret with this match is, in a way, it reminds me of the DDP giant match we had from 90... Was it 98? Yeah, Arcadia. So, yeah. Okay, make sure that you're right in these things. You've done 17 of these, or 18 of these now. This is the 18th one, yeah. Yeah, so I make sure I have these right. I recall, I liked that match, but my problem with the match overall was that it wasn't what I knew it could have been. My issue is that I know Mike Awesome could and has done but up this match i get that mike awesome can't do any of his power bombs to ben bigelow because he's so big and i'm not sure he can take big falls anyways it is combination of his age and his size and everything so i get why he's not power bombing as cool as that would be but we also want to get mike awesome doing a dive which i know he could do which is really impressive he didn't dive out of the ring at Bigelow. I don't know if it's an issue of catching or what. Yeah, he didn't didn't dive out of the ring at Bigelow in the opening five seconds of the match. Yeah. Or at any other or point. Ever, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the fact is, he was 6'8", six, 6'9", six, I don't know what exact title one was. Oh, yeah. 280, 300 pounds of muscle, and he's diving with a ring like the cruiser. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's amazing to see, yeah. So it's a shame we don't get to see that in the match. Mm-hmm. Nor do we get to see him do a frog splash, which is really impressive as well, because he got amazing air on those. So it's not 100% the match I was hoping as a Mike Awesome one, especially because it's our only one as part of Starcade, unfortunately. But I thought the match was still good. Yeah. Okay. So in the follow-up of this, uh, Mike Awesome has a backstage promo with Crowbar, who tells him he's not doing the 70s guy gimmick thing anymore. Again, let's talk about what gimmicks are in pro wrestling. It's great. And he tasks Mike Awesome with finding his edge, which is confusing because he, he won the match here. I don't get what he Ed needed to find, but apparently he needed to find it. So they do a segment on Thunder, because this is how important the story is. It happens on Thunder and not Nitro or pay-per-view. Duggan tells everyone he's planning to leave because he can't work with America, he can't work with Team Canada anymore. Mike Awesome stops in the back, insists that he stay and watch the rest of the show. He wants to drive him back to his hotel, you know, talk with them, yada yada. Smash cut to towards the end of the show. Team Canada's doing a promo in the ring. Duggan comes in, starts fighting them. And Mike Awesome comes to his rescue, only to, of course, turn on him and join Team Canada. Of course. To be clear, Mike Awesome finding his edge is becoming a polite Canadian. Yeah. Canada is the edgiest nation and the most, mm. the most hardcore of all nations, as, as we know. Yeah. Justin Trudeau is a, is a pretty badass guy. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Punch you out. I, I know you're being sarcastic, but... Punch you out. Sorry. They're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> And uh struggle for a note for this as well, as part of the invasion. Mike Awesome is the first member of the invasion to win gold there. He actually beat Rhino for the hardcore title on Rhino Smackdown. Okay. Where he powerbombs him onto a ladder, which I'm sure hurt. We go backstage to Gene, who is with Reno and the Natural Born Thrillers. That sounds like a band name. It does. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Tony, thank you. Reno, you suckered everybody in tonight, including Big Vito and your sister Marie. What the hell were you thinking? You broke up your family again. Merry Christmas, big brother. I tell you, I must have been adopted because this is my real familia. Exactly. Just another weeble wobble that got suckered in by the thrillers, Gene. You know, you guys make me sick, but Commissioner Mike Sanders, you've got your own set of problems tonight because all of a sudden it is going to be, yes, these two gentlemen, the perfect event facing Kevin Nash and Diamond Dallas Page for the WCW Tag Team titles. You know, Gene, I know I'm your favorite. Hell, I'm everybody's favorite, but... We're not here to talk about me tonight. We're not? We're here to talk about the perfect event, and nobody says perfect event like the, the perfect, perfect event. event. Just what I thought. Chuck Palumbo. Well, let's see. First of all, you got Diamond Dallas Trailer Park Trash. Trash! Then you got that big goof, uh, Kevin Nash. What a goof. I I'm disgusted. Sean, take it away. Tell them how I feel. Kevin Nash, Diamond Dallas Page, for the last two weeks, you run your cake holes about how these titles mean something to you. And at Starcade, how you're going to get them back. Well, guess what, boys? We're at Starcade, and guess what? You're not getting them back. Note to self, the ones who tell you that winning isn't everything are complete and absolute losers. Losers. And that's exactly what you guys will be tonight as the perfect event will retain the tag team titles and go down as the greatest tag team champions in WCW history. And Gene, we got a little something special for you here at Starcade. What's that? What's ah, that? don't worry about it. Oh, I gotta tell you something. That guy there especially, that little wise ass, I'm gonna slap the crap out of him one of these days. Tony, back to you. First time that I've heard someone basically tell someone else to cut a promo for him. <laughs> Seriously, Palumbo, could you just not think of anything? I don't know. Stasiak's promo is fine enough, if a knockoff of The Rock's verbal style and cadence. A bit, yeah. Sanders' bit is perplexing as all get out. Yeah. Weeble wobble? <laughs> What 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 does that what even is that? It's a toy that goes back and forth and always uprights itself. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess just maybe refer, referring to him as a punching bag. Yeah, there I you guess go. that makes sense. Yeah, like that's like a little clown. You punch him in a bag. Yeah. Reno says nothing he didn't already clearly communicate in the match. So not the best performance or most worthwhile promo here. Yeah. It was fun and funny to hear angry Mean Gene make what sounded like Tony laugh at the end of that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Definitely sounded like Tony's surprise laugh. <laughs> I like that him talking about gets the biggest crowd reaction. Of the night, probably so far. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're clearly building up some sort of match with Meeting Oakland that doesn't happen. <laughs> Our sixth match is the franchise Shane Douglas versus General Rection for Rection's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Charles Robinson. As Servant had before, General Rection went through a back-and-forth feud with Lance Storm before finally winning the rubber match and making so Lance Storm can't challenge him again for the title. He's pretty much immediately challenged by Shane Douglas, who attacks him and makes sure that their interactions are very physical about you know backstage beatdowns, something like that. There's a curious bit they do a couple weeks before this show where Shane Douglas still has Tori Wilson as his valet, and she interferes in the match. She climbs on, I think it's Rection's back. And he, they do the back into the corner spot. And she's selling like she's like really hurt. But then 
Chavo is trying to like kick her out of the ring, and they're befuddled the why he's being so heelish. So that's part of his heel turn there. This is kind of a weird aside that the bad guy's valet is taken out, albeit by accident, and then he's complaining in a fairly justified fashion, even though he's definitely the bad guy in the story. Mm-hmm, yeah. Confusing morality system in WCW at this point. Oh, yeah. Not exactly Paragon Renegade going on here, huh? No, no. <laughs> I like Douglas's entrance music, but he doesn't really do anything with it. Yes. It has this long, slower intro before the drums and guitars start up. And it just feels like he should be doing a dramatic pose and then only starting to walk out when the drums hit. But instead, he just kind of strolls out. It's a song that calls for showmanship, and he gives it none. Yeah, it's got this like, big like Catholic church organ build up like he should be walking up like a set of stairs or something yeah posing on a ramp or something like that yeah there's something he should be doing during that bit yeah the sleeveless gold franchise robe isn't great no i'd prefer less big blocky letters and more sparkle man (laughs) (laughs) he lacks those pieces of flair yes exactly (laughs) sometimes i doubt his commitment to sparkle motion (laughs) i I do too (laughs) Douglas asks for his music to be cut. He whines about taking 20 years to be the best in this sport, and he doesn't get the respect he deserves. Tony rightly says, you earn respect, you don't just get it. Rection, Hugh Morris, is responsible for his manager being missing tonight, So, and he says something perplexing about tickets being paid for then mocks the presidential election, saying it won't take 36 days to figure out who wins this contest. <laughs> then he says he's going to put a hole in Rection's heart. Mm. Jeez! That's violent. It's kind of Ricky of him. Rection comes out. His gear is confusing. He's wearing an MIA shirt, mm-hmm. but underneath that, he's got gear marked with question marks, which, I mean, that's not a Rection thing or a Hugh Morris thing, I don't think. Is he the Riddler? I mean, maybe he's the question? Maybe. Douglas cowers in the corner as he approaches, but the moment Rection turns his back, Douglas attacks. Douglas kicks and chokes Rection, taunting the crowd, but as he strikes Rection in the corner, Rection no-sells and just glares at him and lands chops. Douglas tries an eye poke to keep control, but Rection fires back with a clothesline and vicious slaps. He sets up for a charge, but Douglas pulls Robinson in the way, and Rection actually stops in time. That never happens. That's a shock. (laughs) Madden tries to argue that Chavo Guerrero would have run into Robinson, and that means that he has a winning attitude. I have no idea what that means. No. Rection does a splash, and Douglas slumps outside, and Rection beats him up by the announce table. Back in, Rection doesn't quite no-sell, but I guess guts through several strikes to the crotch and face. Rection catches Douglas with a bear hug. Oh, joy. Comes the best part of the match. Yeah. That goes on for a while. Rection does at least lower him down for a couple two counts, and eventually Robinson checks the arm and it stays up on the third try. That's more of a face spot, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of faces, Douglas bites Rection's to get free. Douglas tries a slam, but Rection falls on top for two and goes for his moonsault. But Douglas knocks him to the mat and hits a weird flipping neckbreaker on the ground. <laughs> I couldn't really figure out how that was supposed to work. I, I don't understand that either. It's really weird. Yeah. Impressive, easy-looking Douglas Piledriver, and a neckbreaker for two and a half. He twists Rection's neck, and Rection tries to get the fans to cheer for him, but they seem disinterested. Douglas utterly whiffs on a clothesline, but Rection generously sells anyway, and they end up brawling outside again. Douglas is bloodied. 
back in, Rection tries the moonsault, but Douglas dodges. Douglas tries to punch Rection with a hidden chain, but Rection backdrops him, and Douglas clearly throws the chain away. But Chavo Guerrero runs down and throws it back to Douglas behind Robinson's back, then directs Robinson's attention to Douglas, and Robinson DQs Douglas, giving Rection the win. An angry Douglas decks Rection with the chain and punches him several times with it. Chavo at first retreats, but then runs down to try to save Rection, only to get decked with the chain too. Douglas hits his jawbreaker finisher, the franchiser, on Rection and Chavo in turn, but Corporal Cajun and Sergeant Awal charge down and Douglas retreats. The sound oddly cuts out for a second. So it's a naughty word, I guess. I guess so, maybe. Rection sees Chavo and asks, why did you do it? Cajun helps Chavo out of the ring and Awal helps Rection leave. Thoughts on this one? You know, you'd think of all the people that show up, it wouldn't be AWOL. <laughs> yeah. I, won't, I will not let that go because it makes no <laughs> sense. Uh, my main note for the match was it was fairly slow in plotting. Hmm. It's a lot of slow punching and then a bear hug for 42 and a half years <laughs> with weird little pinning dips. It's like, it's like when you dip someone, you're dancing, but you like hold them there and it just looks. Maybe it's a really old school wrestling thing that just no one does. We we saw it in the on the in the eighties shows occasionally. So, and yes. what they'd always do is like kind of power it back up as mm. well. So he yeah. doesn't do that part, which is which yeah. is not as good. This is weird. It's like I'm a barrack and I'm gonna lean you slowly toward the mat and hope you stay there. <laughs> it's a very odd looking spot. I like the actual power spots they managed to work in there. Like I said, Paul Driver's good, some of the slams are nice. I'm not hundred percent clear on the general powering through taking like three or four low blows in a row like that that was a little weird yeah like had he just done so many steroids it just doesn't affect him anymore i don't give with well, like the the punches to the face part just looked cool when he did it to that but the, yeah the ball shot ones it's like that that should probably do something yeah i don't i don't get that at all maybe it mixed up shane douglas and spice oh <laughs> yeah hers definitely you wouldn't sell <laughs> yes Whew. And of course, the finish is, I know what it is, confusing and messy. Because, yeah, it's weird. Chavo seems to help Douglas, but then betrays him to help General win the match, but then feels bad when he's getting beat up, and he gets beat up, and then... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty confusing. It's genius. <laughs> it's a confusing, like, choose-your-own-adventure story, where every section is, like, three lines, and it cuts to page 25, and then back to <laughs> yeah. 32, and then back to 25 again. You know, the whole making fun of the election thing kind of dated it right off the beginning. Oh, yes. Yeah. It goes throughout the build-up shows, too, I was like, I assure you. Mickey D's versus Blue Pill. <laughs> you know, I love bear hugs. But somehow, <laughs> I didn't mind this one as much as usual. There was a small build-up. They walked around. They had some exchange. And then the second bear hug went into a pin. <laughs> and now... By the third bear hug on Freudian slip man, yeah, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. Die fatty, what? What was that? <laughs> oh yeah. Madden like belts out ha ha die fatty when he like misses the moonsault. I'm oh, like, what I went I fully blocked that out. And then Mickey D's has some weird mirror kirk or, or about ready to yell con crazy eyes and puts him into <laughs> a face tilter. I didn't know the name of the thing, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> And then Gretchen, guess what I'm calling him at this point, hears <laughs> some sort of music to pump himself up and mounts a counterattack. 
Okay, I um, was drinking when the goofy sneak running started. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it spit, did like a spit take. And I was like, sneak running is great. DQ win. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mind the DQ win because it was over. Yeah, I got that. It sounds like I'm a little more positive on this one, I think, than you guys. I, I kind of like this one, honestly. Except for the bear hug spot. Which one? <laughs> I kind of count it all as one gigantic bear hug spot. But aside from that, which admittedly is a large portion of the match, I thought that these two did a pretty good job of bringing out some intensity. The match wasn't very complex, and there's a few weird bits like the no-selling kicks to the nuts. But they both showed emotion, and I found myself actually getting into their fight. It felt kind of weird to me that the crowd wasn't. The ending, though, was all kinds of confusing. I guess it's interesting because I do want to know what Chavo's goals were there, but it's just such a strange way to end a match. Hand your buddy's opponent a weapon, then tell the ref so he loses the match and will now be an extremely ticked-off person with a weapon. Yeah. Not the best planning there. Hey, Al. Here, take this dagger. Oh, thanks. By the way, I think you're an idiot. Hey! Ah! How did I not see this coming? Otherwise, a little sloppy, but some decent action, and I had some fun with this one, honestly. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I absolutely think they could have a good match together, and maybe the next one is. Just the pacing wasn't very good for me. They do good moves, but it's just, it just takes forever, and then that giant prolonged bear hug in the middle. Yeah. That's all momentum for me. I feel like if you kind of like manage to chop out the bear hug spot, it's a pretty good match. Yeah. But with the bear hug spot, that definitely drags it down. Don't, right. don't get me wrong on that. It's kind of a weird thing where... The general can definitely sell car insurance and also do power moves. And that Moose is generally impressive that he does. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's no laughing matter, which is, I guess, what they call yeah, that. Yes. <laughs> but he's powerful, but Shane Douglas isn't, like, super strong himself. So it's not two power wrestlers fighting, but it's also not two technical wrestlers fighting. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's not quite enough of one or the other to be a big power match or a technical match or a really consistent brawl. It just kind of tries to be everything, and has a big slow part in the middle, and it just didn't get invested. Okay. The ending was nice, because uh, they could do something with the narrative. There could be some redemption, like, what were you trying to do? There's some there's mm-hmm. some story that they can do behind it. They could have them break up. They can have them be friends. They had the, the tag team help them out. They, maybe they formed two new tag teams. I don't know. Yeah, they definitely have some potential coming from that. Right. I mean, I felt like when they were walking back, it was just... It was some sort of misunderstanding or like some unintended, you know, outcome and maybe they were going to resolve it somehow. So I thought that was good. Yeah. Also, am I the one that's confused by the logistics of Shane Douglas's finisher? It's a jawbreaker, but like he lifts you under his hat or something. It, it's not really clear how the move works the first it's a, time. It's a pretty it. weird finisher. Yeah, I'd have to say. I can't even describe how it's supposed to work. It's like something, something. Now your jaw hurts. Yeah. I'm confused by how the whole thing process. And the franchiser name is just weird. Yes. It's like, I have finished you off and got the three count, and now you own a Wendy's. <laughs> I mean, if if he had, like, a spare jacket and put it on you after he knocked yeah. you out, then there you okay. Go. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't. Take take the snake, but with, you know, jackets and not a snake. Yeah. <laughs> As you can probably imagine, this is leading up to a rematch between St. Douglas and the General, which has... Not one, but two stipulations. The first is that it's a first blood match. So I guess Rambo's involved as a guest referee. Okay. Naturally. And it is also a chain on a pole match. Oh, God. And answer your question, no, they did not rehire Russo again. 
<laughs> they just happen to have a first blood chain in a pole match. Okay. To open the year. Um, as far as the Misfits story goes, they try to push the story where Chavo definitely is not coming back to them. He's definitely staying his heel self and not being Lieutenant Loco again. But it seems like he's trying to recruit Lasheru, Corporal Cajun, to be on his side. So they're trying to have a division between them okay. going forward. So they do actually play up that a little bit. Okay. We go backstage to Gene who is with Scott Steiner and WCW World Heavyweight Champion Medeja. Kidding, she just gets to hold Steiner's belt for him. <laughs> Once the audio finally cuts in, we can hear Gene interview Steiner. I am not playing this promo. Mm-mm. Absolutely not. Gene says Steiner and Vicious are confined to their locker rooms. Steiner says the key word is beat, and makes Gene repeat it. Vicious will be beat. The second beat is when, insert several sexual references here... <laughs> So that happened. <laughs> yeah. The, like, 10 seconds of wrestling promo we got from Steiner here was energetic, but then it just devolved into him talking about sex, and it never came back. So, um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to move on. 100%. I think we should insert the whole thing. <laughs> oh, God. Don't say insert. <laughs> oh, my hey, gosh. The best part comes right after it. Yes. <laughs> and now... Best part of the show right here. Oh, yeah. We get an awesome promo video for Glacier. Now, these kind of videos actually first played in 1996 when he was first coming to WCW, but apparently they've decided to run them again, and they're just as gloriously over the top as before and just as close to copyright infringement. Besides the obvious knockoff of the Mortal Kombat theme, they've got this big circular portal thing that's clearly a knockoff of the Stargate from the movie or SG-1. I can't remember if the series had started yet. The old promos used the tagline, Blood Runs Cold, but these used the tagline, Blood Runs Colder. The Ice Age returns to WCW. Again. Honestly, we're like an hour and 38 minutes into the show right now, and if you just showed me stuff like that for an hour and 38 minutes instead of what we've seen so far, I think I'd be a lot happier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, to be clear, none of this happens on pay-per-view at all. It is 100% confined to Thunder. Oh, great. Not Nitro, Thunder. The Glacier build-up actually began at Mayhem, where they literally mentioned Stargate... They play it on the show, and one of them, I think Mark Madden, asked, is that a Stargate? So, yeah, if they hadn't been sued yet, that was coming. <laughs> the promos run for a couple weeks more after this. They run them on Nitro and Thunder. However, the big payoff comes where Norman Smiley gets a note backstage from Glacier, who tells him that he is going to be ringside to back him up. Norman Smiley, he has a match against Goldberg, and of course he doesn't beat Goldberg, and Glacier does not show up. Did they make a cold shoulder joke? <laughs> I hope they do, but they did catch it. The next week on Thunder, North Mai's got another match against somebody. Glacier does actually show up. They play his music. He appears at the ramp wearing the really cheap-looking armor. The really awesome armor, though. Right, in, sure. In, in, in that it is cheesy and cheap-looking, but, but hilarious. Substandard. Yes. Pretty much. 
Glacier spends the whole time walking on ringside, high-fiving people, taking pictures with them, <laughs> and coolly ignoring what's happening in the ring. <laughs> this sounds awesome, I have to say, actually. The week after, Glacier finally actually shows up, but doesn't help. Norman Smiley is talking to him backstage in his locker room, and thanks him for showing up, but asks if he could maybe pick up the pace a little bit and actually help him out. So Norman's got a match against Bayman Bigelow, where Glacier does the exact same thing all over again. Finally, Bam and Bigelow is bored with being under Norman Smiley after he's won the match, and casually rolls out of the ring and walks to the back, whereupon Glacier slides into the ring and announces that he's scared off the enemy and vanquished him and <laughs> had to save Norman Smiley. Kane sort of chased him off. That leads to the, sadly, final Glacier bit, the very next Thunder, where Smiley has a match against one of the members of the Natural Born Thrillers. So we see Norman in the back again, backstage in the locker room, talking into the locker room. We don't actually see into the room, asking him again to be a little more helpful this time. I appreciate you shut up, but you gotta be more helpful. And then leaves to go to the ring. Whereupon Mark Jinder and Sean O'Hare walk up, joke about how Glacier maybe not gonna help him this time, go into the room, camera does not follow them. We hear lots of grunting and smashing noises. And they walk out about 30 seconds later, laughing about how easy it was to beat Glacier up, adding that he was, quote, standing on his cape the entire time. And that is the end of the Glacier Return story. Okay. All on Thunder. (laughs) I I do have to say, like, up until that last bit, I think it kind of did sound like gold to me. Mm -hmm. If you kept that going a little longer and did something with it, it would be pretty fun. That's the thing, too. The after the first time he appears and does the silly ignore Norman the ring bit, someone actually does have a sign saying Glacier's my hero. The people got that they're going for this over the top thing, and it just stops. Yeah, that's sad. For the reason that they're not clear. Uh, probably cease and desist letters. <laughs> <laughs> they also missed the opportunity to call themselves Thriller Instinct. <gasps> yes. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to get sued, you might as well try. You might as well go all, whole acro- um whole arachnoman. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't feel that stupid name. <laughs> we go back to Buff Bagwell, who's with the Insiders, Kevin Nash and Diamond Dallas Page. Well, looky here, it's Buff Daddy Bagwell backstage with two of the big men. I'm talking about DDP and Kevin Nash, and once again, you got to wrestle for the world tag team titles against who? <laughs> The natural born thrillers. Oh my god. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm trying to figure out if all those guys together combined are making the same amount of money as your contract alone. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Maybe not a hell of a deal here, kid. It reminds me I broke in in 61. I worked with Mulligan in Tampa. Had a hell of a deal there. Went to Lake City, sold it out. A hell of a deal. Was it sold out? I give him the real deal. The thing is, is this. These two jack-offs, we've had it with these guys. It's Starcade, it's a granddaddy. This is Mr. Christmas himself. And, you know, the insiders decide they're going to give themselves a little Christmas present. It's the tag team belts. It's as easy as that. It goes down like this, Buff Daddy. Natural Born Monkeys, you see Big Kevin Page, Nash and Page? We found a fountain of youth. We're like fine wine. That's right. We're in our prime. You're going to push us out? They've been trying to hold us back for years. Back that camera up, monkey. Get both of us in this picture. 
They've been trying to hold us down for years. They said we'd never get here. Well, guess what? We did. Both ex-world champions. And you monkeys think you're going to throw us out? I don't think so. You want to get in it? Come get it. <laughs> Anything to say, Big K, to finish that off? Well, we got to kill some time. Let's kill some time. Oh! <laughs> you're like Buff Masterson. Who? Buff Masterson. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in, baby. Was Nash drunk? <laughs> Usually a better question to ask is Nash not drunk. <laughs> Given all the stories you'll tell about. Oh my gosh, this was so weird. Paige's promo isn't great, but Paige does at least get across that he and Nash feel like the thrillers aren't a threat. Nash just kind of makes weird jokes the whole time. It's very, very strange promo. And it seemed like Buff was expecting some kind of dramatic ending from Nash there and just was confused by what he got. Yeah, you got a Bass Masterson reference. Yeah, Bass Masterson, yeah. Like, what? I get the joke. It's how yeah. Buff's dressed with the little, like, uh, bowler hat on. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, <laughs> that's all you've got, Nash? What? I have a feeling that, like, if I did promos, they would be like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just want to be goofy and not really fully make sense? I'm okay with that. I don't know even how to describe it, really. Uh, it's it's just he's kind of standing there just goofing off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're live. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit with Kevin Nash. As part of the build-up to the match, they get the previous match of Mayhem. Before he introduces DDP, he has typical Kevin Nash, you know, breaking kayfabe and all that, where he talks about how he had 13 months and 10 days left on his contract. You know, but he was counting, as he said. Mm-hmm. And so he did the math on that. So that would mean his contract expired at some point in January 2002, which actually is true. So he actually was counting. If anyone's going to be very aware of his contract negotiations, I'm sure it's Kevin Nash. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Our seventh match is Jeff Jarrett and the Harris brothers, Ron and Don, versus the Filthy Animals, that's Conan, Kidman, and Rey Mysterio, with Tigris in a bunkhouse brawl slash Filthy Animals street fight. Referee for this one is Scott James. So this is a weird one to recap. As weird as you would expect from matches, two matches that are basically the same, but somehow different. Yes. The build-up to this involves the Filthy Animals being a set faction. Ray is booked in a match against Jeff Jarrett on Nitro. Bear in mind, Jeff Jarrett is a bad guy because, you know, he says slap nuts, so of course he's a bad guy. Yes. You can't be a good guy and say slap nuts. No. It's a rule. Yes, yeah. it is a rule. Yes, definitely. With that in mind, the Philly Animals are constantly teeting against him and his matches with Mysterio. So that leads to Jeff Jarrett finally getting tired of their, their cheating and hitting Ray with a guitar in midair, which is a pretty cool visual. But he, of course, loses by DQ because of that, because he doesn't run for the free. So he then decides to hire the tag team that you can just hire to fight for you. And no, that's not chronic. <laughs> Even though it is. Because there are two tag teams that are two big, tall fairly untalented guys in the back who will fight for you. The difference is Chronic apparently takes bags of unmarked cash. The Harris Brothers take quote, a couple of sandwiches and some drinks. Well, you know, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yes. He hires the Harris Brothers to even the odds against them, thus putting in place a multi-man feud that's been going on, and as part of that, the Filthy Animals challenge him to a street fight. Which, of course, he then turns into a street fight slash bunkhouse brawl. Okay. Jeff Jarrett's favorite word is now just all over the place. It's on his entrance video, on his shirt, on his headband, on his guitar. 
Well, that killed any chance for him to get Al's MVP this year. 100%. (laughs) He grabs a microphone and says the filthy animals thought they were going to get one over on him, but he's the chosen one and he has the stroke. So he got Commissioner Sanders to make this a street fight and a bunkhouse match. I still have no idea what the difference is. He calls out to Ron and Don Harris and they make their entrance to some wibbly-wobbly guitar music. Well, Tony goes over the feud and we see shots of the various props, including a popcorn machine, a saloon bar counter and stools, a shopping cart full of soda cans, and a dumpster with a broom and some cardboard. The filthy animals make their entrance. Mysterio's sparkly suspenders and devil horns make me long for the furry Chewbacca jacket. I I take the horns over that still. Really? It's not a good choice. Jarrett hurls a graffitied-up garbage can at Mysterio, but he catches it and rams it into Jarrett, and we're off. Tigress joins the announced team as a chaotic brawl ensues, with the teams hitting each other with anything available. Amongst the chaos, Conan and Kidman perfectly time simultaneous shots with bar stools on the Harrises. Jarrett and Mysterio duel with trash cans, and Kidman runs Jarrett into the popcorn machine, which seems more delicious than painful. <laughs> The animals gain the advantage, and Mysterio hits the incredibly stupid Bronco Buster move on each Harris as Tigress oddly starts barking. But Jarrett blocks it with a boot and hurls Mysterio away. More chaos, and Jarrett ends up trying to superplex Kidman through the bar counter and clearly sees Mysterio coming, but goes for it anyway. Shockingly, Mysterio hits him in the crotch, and he and Kidman drive Jarrett through the counter instead for two as a Harris saves. Kidman and Mysterio each get some crazy flying moves in, but Jarrett turns an attempted Mysterio rebound Hurricane into a powerbomb into a dumpster, and Mysterio is out cold. Conan checks on him as Kidman crossbodies Jarrett for two, but as Conan gets back in, the ref suddenly decides that tag rules exist in this match, and forces everybody but a Harris and Kidman to the apron. <laughs> it's inverse of the first match tonight, and Tony is just as perplexed by that as I am. Yeah, he jokes about they he must have something on these guys to, yeah. to get him to agree. Jarrett and the Harrises tag in and out, beating Kidman up, and earn a few two counts, with Kidman only being able to fight Brack briefly after a Harris can't powerbomb Kidman. Of course, that's the rule. Kidman finally escapes with the Bulldog and tags Conan, who hits rolling clotheslines to all three heels in a nice spot. You can catch a supposedly unconscious Jarrett staring right at Kidman to see if he should be getting up yet on the tag. <laughs> Conan's offense gets cut off by the Harris's underwhelming double-team finisher, the H-bomb. Jarrett and the Harris's retrieve a table, and Hudson jokes that there's so many tables under the ring, it's like it's a Pez dispenser for tables. Okay, he had one good line tonight. <laughs> by the way, Jarrett and the Harris is also a good band name. <laughs> it actually is, yeah, yeah. Mysterio wakes up and goes wild with a broom on the heels. Jarrett falls on the table, but it doesn't position right, so Mysterio has to move him off, move the table, and put him back on. Slight suspensions of disbelief problems there. A bit, yeah. Mysterio tries a springboard splash, but the Harrises catch him. Jarrett rolls off the table, and the Harrises hit the H-bomb on Mysterio through the table. Kidman makes the save and disposes of the Harrises, hitting his disturbingly named Kid Crusher. (laughs) Don't think about that one too hard. (laughs) Jarrett takes it entirely on his knees. Oh yeah. A Harris breaks a beer bottle over Kidman's head, and he goes down, so Jarrett hits the stroke for the three-count and the win. Hudson keeps calling Jarrett and company the Nashville World Order because we need more NWO stuff. Tigress checks on Mysterio, and the ref checks on Kidman. Thoughts on this one? I describe it as a confusing match as... (laughs) Yes. I'm not saying I would have really liked this match a whole lot, 
But I would have liked it better if it was either A, the constant chaotic weapons fight it is at the beginning, just shorter, or B, a somewhat controlled weapons tag team match, which second half of the match is. Mm-hmm. But because it's both of them, I can't really get invested in either version of the match because it's one too hard to follow and one is okay to follow but it's not interesting mm-hmm. it's the worst of both worlds really <laughs> so the second part is the bunkhouse part yeah i'm not really sure like i think that's maybe the idea is that one of them is a match that would have tag rules and the other doesn't but i don't know that either of them would actually have tag rules because a street fight normally doesn't a bunkhouse match i mean number one is normally a singles match yeah but I don't think it does either, so I'm not really sure. Yeah. But I think that's maybe the idea they're going for, is that that's why the tag rules suddenly get imposed. But the announcers are totally perplexed by that, so they clearly didn't tell them the storyline if that's what it was. Which is classic WCW. Yes. Also, we just had a bunkhouse brawl last year, in the last episode of this show, where they didn't have bar sets at all. No. So what part of that is... Well, Al, a wheelbarrow and a bar and stools are, are identical. Huh. See, because the wheelbarrow, it has yeah. wheels, right. and bar stools are circular. Okay, go that's, on. That, no, that's all you need. Oh, that's it? Okay, yeah. Sorry, yeah. there's more to it. Yeah. There's there's no no further justification needed. I think I've proved my Is point. Is this one of those uh, coffee cup is also a donut <laughs> kind of explanations? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, just, that whole part doesn't resemble the bunkhouse brawl we had last no. year, the singles no. match. And I'm pretty sure a filthy animal street fight wouldn't be in a bar because he'd no. be in the street. Just usually not a bar. Yeah, there's not yeah. normally like popcorn machines for movie theaters just sitting on the street either. Popcorn so. is usually underestimated. Yeah, and I thought that they could have had a thing where they someone gets blinded by some hot butter, but they didn't yeah. do it or no. assaulted or any of that stuff. No. Assault him, buttering. You think General Erection <laughs> come out there to meet the Colonel or something, but never happened. <laughs> Why am I the only one not making puns right now? It feels I don't really know. weird. And JJ passes the bar exam. <laughs> <laughs> the best payoff to the pop machine is the the poorest stagehand that has to be the one that wheeled that to the back because they broke it open and oh, yeah. full of popcorn. Everyone taking like props to the back of the ring out. This guy's got to awkwardly sort of keep this up, but not too far or still. Yeah. And it's glass. He's like, he's clearly having such a hard time managing that thing. Poor guy. <laughs> it's like, somebody help him. <laughs> yeah, he's the second person on this. My biggest problem with this match is, despite all the, the excess props and exploding tables and wood and debris in general, it's mostly a cover for the fact that Basically, the match turns into doing the same finish like three times in a row. Because mm-hmm. it's fight, fight, fight. Oh, and the H-bomb. Fight, fight. Oh, and the H-bomb again. Yeah. I guess they get a, around doing the H-bomb the third time, but it's just Jeff Jarrett his finisher then. Yeah, yeah. It's like, maybe don't jump at their arms when they're standing there. Yeah. Is it going to happen? Yeah. And apparently, H-bomb is this super interesting finisher because Conan is down for a while after that. I, I get Ray's, because Ray already took the power one spot and then went through a table, but yeah. Conan is just, I guess, that was critically successful against him. Yeah. It's too confusing to make sense, and it's not interesting enough because of that. I can't, I couldn't follow the story of it and get invested at all. Did you like the guest announcing and every that part where they're having that conversation throughout the whole match? Yeah, they're talking about Ray. her being worried for her boyfriend, Ray Mysterio. Mm-hmm. 
there there were i don't know some moderately okay lines in the middle of it but it was also just kind of a weird discussion <laughs> yeah it was refreshing i was like okay well this is i don't know what this is <laughs> yeah like, yeah i was like she she seems nice yeah yeah <laughs> and i enjoyed ray ray's double bronco <laughs> oh my god i thought that was good and then I was like, oh. okay, rule of three came into play, and... and <laughs> yeah. Ray Mysterio clearly hates his, un- his own undercarriage. I don't get how the Bronco Buster is supposed to hurt anything other than your own balls. Can you explain that to me, John? Well, there is a sheer force when, when your weight is transferred to something, like when you're doing the bounce, where you probably are mm-hmm. putting three or four times your normal weight on them until okay. the turnbuckle mm-hmm. gives. So, you know, there is a point where... That's a controlled movement by the aggressor, so you're not able to position yourself in a way where the pelvic thrusting does not harm your person. Okay. <laughs> also, yeah, it seems self-inflictory. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's it's a weird move. I think it's more for a sh- showboat. It's just a showy yeah. thing, yeah. But, oh my gosh. <laughs> I did like that they incorporated some of the props into their moves. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just like I wanted the moonsault ladder thing from earlier. But, you know, they did have the route. Yeah. Was it Route 51 face buster or something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ray does his uh, sentence thing with uh, the sign under him and everything. Yeah. They, they use the props fairly well over the course of the match. And surprisingly, no one's bleeding. Someone went face first in that popcorn machine, but I guess... Enough. Well, the, I actually looked on that on the uh, when I was doing my show notes. The front of it is open at the time, oh. or or knocked off, or something like that. So he doesn't actually go through glass into oh. the popcorn. He just goes into popcorn, which oh. like that's not going to harm you. <laughs> it might be a little hot, unless you're allergic to coconut oil. Yeah, maybe he has a salt allergy. Yeah. <laughs> this was fun, but really chaotic and confusing. There were a lot of great spots and some neat stunts, but it was hard to know what to pay attention to at any given moment during the first half of the match, and I found it hard to stay involved in the match because I couldn't keep track of people's positions or conditions that well with everyone going everywhere. Once they moved to tag rules, that got easier, but why did they move to tag rules? (laughs) I did not expect to be asking questions about mysteriously disappearing or appearing tag rules even once tonight, much less twice. (laughs) Yeah. If they just started as a six-man tag match, maybe with weapons from the get-go, I think this would have been an easier match to enjoy. As it was, I did actually like it, but I had to work to like it. I did really enjoy the ending. Lots of spots that could have been the finish, but they just kept getting interrupted until finally one team has solid enough control to actually go for the pin. So it was fun, but too chaotic for me. The H-bomb is not a good finisher. No, the H-bomb. We all agree on that? no, No, yeah, that's... Let's pick him up kind of in the air and just, you know, set him down in not a particularly aggressive fashion. It looks okay with the table. I'll, I'll give him that bit. Yeah. But, I mean, anything kind of looks okay with the table. It's just an underwhelming finisher to be taking people down as hard as it supposedly does. Yeah. It's like the DT, you know, back in the 80s. It's like, okay, that's a devastating finisher. And you get why people stay down for that. Right. But this is not the same thing. Yeah. It doesn't have the gravitas of the diamond cutter or something like that. Even the neckbreaker. No. I mean, Legion of Doom used that for a long time. Right, yeah, yeah. You think of the big double-team finishers, and this one just does not hold up to the big tag-team finishers. You do as much damage if there's one of them versus two of them. Right, yeah. As part of his victory here, Jeff Jarrett is promoted to being a world title contender, again, just 
surprising, going into the match at Sin. Well, they felt the animals would segue their feud into a match against Team Canada in a penalty box match. <laughs> where basically the heel ref can decide you've done something wrong and put you in the penalty box for two minutes during the match itself. Okay. Tony throws to a promo package for WCW's upcoming Sin pay-per-view, their new January show that replaces Sold Out. Darn. It's a great promo, actually. Loads of exciting wrestling shots interspersed with words of virtues and sins and other biblical-sounding words. You cannot imagine what will happen, apparently. Well, I'm up for it. It sounds like that should be our next series. How many shows does it have? Oh. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Buff Bagwell is with Sarge, Dwayne Bruce. We last saw Sarge as Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker making an epic crawl to the ring at Starcade 1991. Match of the night. <laughs> he has since been training wrestlers at the WCW power plant, including Goldberg. I've had a few minutes backstage here to talk to Dwayne Bruce, but you know what, Dwayne? I've, I've got to call you Sarge. Is that okay? That's fine. Because when that word Sarge is spoken anywhere around World Championship Wrestling, it's talked about with the utmost respect from all the guys to the booking committee to everybody. And, you know, tonight, from what you've done to the power plant to build the talent down there like you have, you've got one guy come out of that power plant that has been a superstar. That's Bill Goldberg. And tonight he's going up against the total package Lex Luger. How do you feel about that? You know, Lex, I know Bill's going against you, but I wished it was me. I've been up and down these roads a long time, had a lot of things, but nothing has frustrated me as much as you have the last couple of weeks. And if there's one thing I taught Bill Goldberg, that's... That's a weird lesson. Hold on a second. How you doing, man? Since you're... Coach! Somebody get the coach! Barely a promo, but I guess it does set things up well enough. <laughs> I did love, of course, Luger selling his own attack louder than his victim. <laughs> yeah, that's glorious. <laughs> Never change, Lex. Never change. <laughs> Bless you. I, I think if you are loud when you're delivering your strike, it provides more force. Well, yeah, yeah. Your key merges with your fist. Yeah, see, Luger has understood that for years, yeah. They're actually just sonic attacks. <laughs> he doesn't actually and get back and, and his shouting on defense is like a uh, key barrier. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, to yeah. defend himself. Yeah, there you go. That's why it sounds the same either way. Or maybe just a sound wave that's strong enough to flex some of the force. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole focal point of this is, let's talk about how the Sarge trained Goldberg. But no credit for Assassin Number 1 for also helping train Goldberg. Yeah. I mean, he probably taught many lessons about wearing a mask and putting small pieces of metal in said mask. The critical life lessons. Yeah. I use that every day. I kind of I wanted to see what your your job is like now. I yeah, yeah, don't. yeah. It's very useful for surveys, honestly. <laughs> the one's eating your eating your sandwich uh, from the refrigerator. You got put my mask on. Yep, yep. There's metal in here and take care yep. of business. Absolutely. Do you have metal detectors? <laughs> <laughs> you <do>. Nah. Okay. <laughs> Back at the ring, WCW staff clean up the remains of the props from the previous match. Tony says that they've come a long way since Flair and Harley race in 1983, and starts laughing. The announcers argue about Luger versus Goldberg, and Tony brings up the insiders challenging for the tag titles, but that leads to Madden and Hudson having an argument about doctored video footage and Pamela Anderson plastic surgeries, as Tony stares straight ahead looking like he'd rather be anywhere but there. 
Tony throws to a video package covering the tag title match. It basically just tells us that DDP and Nash want the belts, and the thrillers like to laugh a lot and hit people with title belts. Useful information. So our eighth match is The Insiders, Diamond Dallas Page and Kevin Nash, versus The Perfect Event, Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak, with Commissioner Mike Sanders for the Perfect Events WCW World Heavyweight Tag Team Championships. The referee for this match is Charles Robinson. Storyline for this one? I mean, you summed it up quite well with the laughing and that, <laughs> yeah. but I guess I can go a little more. <laughs> they build a story that Kevin Nash was suddenly being the nice veteran who helps the young guys in the back. Pause for laughter. <laughs> so he had been helped train the natural born thrillers. And of course, in classic wrestling fashion, the second they got what they wanted, they betrayed him and attacked him. So he had to call for backup, which was Diamond Dallas Page, who made his triumphant return even though he'd done it like a week before to randomly fight Balladome people. as for a whole other stupid thing we can talk about because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Side note, I'd love to see Kevin Nash doing uh, Tommy Wiseau's role from the room. Oh, yeah. You just picture him doing that. Everyone betray me! I'm fed up with this world! I can see that. Yeah. Probably sound a lot like that promo he just did. <laughs> I only see Nash as playing like Thor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that too. Well, he, he played Thor's dead. Yeah. He did play Odin in a really terrible movie. Oh. He did, yeah. I can see the resemblance in him and his son. Yeah. <laughs> so the part they're referring to about video packages is notable. So at the previous show, Paige and Nash had won the titles. However, after the first title offense, Sanders comes out with some footage which was clearly doctored, showing that Palumbo had tagged in, but then shows them pinning Sean Stasiak. So, they're saying he pinned the wrong person, so the towel should be upheld. By the way, how many times has that event actually happened over the course of the Starcades that we've watched and <laughs> just been fine? Yeah. <laughs> this time it matters. Yeah. Ric Flair, he has a really stupid line about how it's not important who's right or who's wrong. It's important is that you do the right thing. Even though he must know that footage isn't real, because he yeah. watched the actual show. But regardless, he gives them the titles back and then announces this match for a Starcade. Okay. Page sadly doesn't have his knockoff Nirvana theme anymore, but Nash, of course, still has his theme. So NWO Wolfpack theme count one. <laughs> Madden tries to imply that there's dissension because the insiders entered separately. Page literally waited at the top of the ramp for Nash to come out. <laughs> After the perfect event enter, Ric Flair's theme hits and he comes out in a boring gray suit. Aww. Yeah, I know. Flair takes a microphone and says that Sanders isn't allowed to just run around out here, and if he takes one step towards the ring, then Nash and Page win the tag belts. One step towards the ring, he repeats. One foot in the ring, he amends. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Flair realized after the first couple times that the first wording wouldn't even let Sanders finish walking to ringside, so he quickly amended there. Couldn't you just ban him from ringside? You could, yeah. Okay, just checking. An annoyed Sanders takes the belts and goes to the announce table, and Madden tries holding his headset out for Sanders to talk into. It might have worked if Sanders had actually put it on, but he tries speaking into it from the wrong angle, and you can barely hear a word he says. I did catch him saying that Flair doesn't run the company Sanders does. No. No. <laughs> Nash and Palumbo start, and Palumbo uses a cheap shot to get in some punches, but Nash dominates with corner clotheslines, knee strikes, and punches as Palumbo tries to signal for a timeout. 
Nash tags Paige, and he comes in with a diving clothesline for two, but Palumbo soon flees the ring. Back in, he tags Stasiak. After some Paige strikes, Stasiak hits a big boot, but Paige slides under a second and crotches Stasiak on the ring post. Nice smooth counter into a belly-to-belly suplex by Paige. Stasiak narrowly avoids a diamond cutter, but eats a rock bottom that Tony calls a chokeslam, before Palumbo turns the tide with his jungle kick. Palumbo and Stasiak trade off battering Paige with strikes, and a nice overhead throw by Palumbo. See, Shannon Moore, that's how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) That gets a two count. They keep cutting off Paige as he crawls towards Nash, and Nash bellows to tell Robinson that they're choking Paige. Trapped in the heel corner, Paige fights back, but Palumbo hits him from behind and Paige collapses, headbutting a fallen Stasiak in the crotch. <laughs> Sting often does a variant of that pass-out headbutt spot. It's funny that with all the Starcades he's been on, we still saw Paige do it first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's here in spirit, Bob. Yeah, there you go. Paige gets his awesome discus lariat and eventually makes the tag and slumps out of the ring. Nash runs wild with big boots and side slams, and sets up for the jackknife powerbomb, but Stasiak hits a flying clothesline from the top to give Palumbo two and a half. Outside, Sanders slugs Paige in the crotch. Sanders climbs the apron, which I guess is technically not in the ring, and Nash knocks him down, but Robinson is distracted and Stasiak clubs Nash with the title belt, then runs outside to try it on Paige as WCW decides, you know, we didn't need to see Paige counter that into a diamond cutter. No. To be fair, DP calls matches 100% on the fly, so they had no advance notice of that spot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Cameraman probably had notes stuck on his camera. Be sure to catch this at yeah. this precise time. <laughs> Six and a half minutes into match. Look yeah. here. His DDP stands for definitely don't plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Palumbo gets two off the belt shot on Nash as Paige pulls him out of the ring for the save. Thriller's Mark Jindrak and Sean O'Hare attack, but Paige hits the diamond cutter on Jindrak, then crotches O'Hare on the ropes. Why none of this is worth a disqualification is beyond me, since Robinson saw all or most of it. Nash hits a big boot and the jackknife powerbomb to Palumbo for the three-count, the win, and the titles. Paige and Nash fist bump as a disbelieving Sanders looks on. We do at least get a replay of that diamond cutter to Stasiak that we missed earlier. Nash grabs a microphone and imitates Scott Hall, saying... Hey, yo, we got him again. I guess that's a nice tribute. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? This is one of those matches where it's really two kind of matches stuck together. Because other than the early flourish and a bit of back and forth with Kevin Nash, it quickly becomes the here's the DDP is in peril part of the match. Yes. Which is hasn't planned out very well. And executed really well by everyone involved. So mm-hmm. we have complaints about that. It's just a very obvious here is this section of the match which then ends with a tag. And for me, there's a real juxtaposition between the two, because so you've watched DDP do all these varied moves and counters and back-and-forth sequences. Then Kevin Nash tags in and does punches and big boots and more big boots and more punches. Does a couple side slams. Yeah. Keyword being a couple of side slams. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, I get what you're going for. Yes. <laughs> And, yeah, as you pointed out, there is a lot of interference in the match. I don't know why it doesn't lead to a DQ. Right? Yes. The ref didn't see it, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Poor Charles Robinson can only see something like two feet in front of his face. Guess referee Helen Keller. Yeah. Very ineffective. Well, if it happens outside the ring, it doesn't count. (laughs) Is that it now? There's half of it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
Well, okay, so we also introduced the idea that if Sanders got in the ring, it'd be DQ and Paige and Nash would win the titles, even though it definitely would be DQ if he got in the ring, I would I would think. Mm-hmm. And there's no pay after that. Nope. No, I thought that's what they were planning on doing, is like the great lead up and the one step before and then one step in. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were just going to like trick him into stepping in the ring and just like, ha ha. Yeah. That would, that would fit Kevin Nash, honestly. I could see like DP the diamond cutter on um, Jindrak and go for and Sanders, but doing a way so Sanders obviously pushes away and his only recourse is to roll into the ring and then the ref sees him. Yeah. 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 He dodges into the ring and then they're like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a fun way to play with that, yeah. But they don't. The middle part with Paige I liked. His interaction was really really good. He sells for them quite well. He has a varied offense. But when he's not in there in the beginning and when he's not in there at the end, it's just not as good. Okay. He's there to fight six people on the outside. And then Kevin Ash is there to just hit his third move of the match and win. Yeah, but they're big, powerful moves. They are big, powerful moves. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. not taking away from that, but... Nope. There's just no variety to it. I, I get that. But he did take off his shirt at the end. He did. Yeah. I was still on a little bit of a glacier high when I was watching this. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that. I'm trying to fit all the characters. I'm like, okay, well, you know, Ray Ray can be this person and fight Glacier. You know, like, <laughs> and, and this one, I'm like, I'm seeing DDP and Nash doing the hand signs. I'm like, okay, so Nash is Anubis. He's got the dog ears. <laughs> and then when DDP does like that, he's got the wings and like the eye of Horus or Ra, you know, and he's oh, looking yeah, up into go. the sun. I'm like, all right, we got the Egyptian angle. And I mean, like, we, we already have a Stargate. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, that's true, probably yeah. like some subliminal <laughs> message. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't yeah. make that. Mm-hmm connotation i just figured it was like you know they have those portals in the later mortal combats i just thought it was just representation yeah, of that. yeah. that's all i didn't even think of it being stargate <laughs> or you know stargate atlantis not looking at it <laughs> the illusion was broken when they pulled in their opponents and i'm like all right well let's just, let's get on with the match and i'll stop theory crafting and everything <laughs> <laughs> i i do enjoy nash and i do enjoy uh, ddp they're really the only things in the match that kind of kept me interested some of his best diamond cutters were outside the ring and just off camera yeah yeah Yeah. and i was a little disappointed in that at least it wasn't a dq at least you know people you thought were going to win won even if it wasn't (laughs) the way that you thought it was going to happen yeah no i enjoyed the match but nothing really stood out to me Mm -hmm. it's what i expected from them put that way yeah yeah, for me, a uh, basic tag match and a little repetitive. There's multiple points where they'll do a spot, then they'll do the same spot with a slight variation at the end. True. Palumbo and Stasiak feel very green, but what they can do, they do quite well. Still, most of the interest in this match is from DDP doing his usual excellent job selling and building up sympathy and teasing slash hitting the diamond cutter. The end of the match pretty much shatters the DQ rules, though. Oh, yeah. The perfect event should have been DQ'd many times over for things done in full view of the referee, but they weren't, and it just doesn't make sense. And why wouldn't Flair just tell Sanders, if you or the other thrillers interfere, the insiders win the titles? He limits it to Sanders for no other reason than that if he didn't, we couldn't have interference. (laughs) Stories need to have an internal logic, and this one didn't. The match, though, was basic, but fine. And I got a couple nice diamond cutter spots, so I'm happy. I would have liked if it had been O'Hare instead of Zaziac, probably. Yeah. I like him better. 
I, I, I like Sean O'Hare, and I'm sad that he didn't end up in a match on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cut to Sin, of course, where there is another rematch between these teams, only with Shantae Zegger played with Sean O'Hare. Yay! Said duo, Plumbo and O'Hare, are notable for being the final tag team champions in WCW, and because they accepted the contract buyout, they would be the inaugural WCW tag team champions in the WWF, holding them until August. It's actually quite a way into the evasion, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Tony throws to a video package covering Goldberg versus Luger. It's a little disjointed, but I guess seems to give decent coverage of the story. So our ninth match is Goldberg versus Lex Luger in a no-disqualification match with Goldberg's career on the line. Referee for this is Billy Silverman. Russo had come back at some point in 2000, but is now gone. Mm-hmm. So we're in this weird spot where storylines he set up are still playing out to some sort of conclusion and new twists and turns and whatnot. One of them he set up is that Goldberg had to win every match he was in. He had started a new streak, and if he lost any matches, he would be fired. They're keeping that story going, I guess. I guess that was good enough to keep. It's a reasonable angle, honestly. Yeah, I don't know how you write yourself out of that as well. So I guess yeah. probably the bigger issue. Yeah. So Mayhem had a match between Goldberg and Lex Luger, which was an old match. However, there's a spot where Goldberg goes to spear Luger, and he pulls a referee in front to take the spear with him. He would eventually, of course, get pinned by Goldberg, because, you know, he's still wrestling right now, and lose the match. But in the following Nitro, Luger would complain, trying to show altered footage without him pulling the ref, just the ref being hit, mm-hmm. claiming that Goldberg should have been disqualified for attacking the referee. Yeah. And he should actually be the one to beat Goldberg. Surprisingly, despite the fact that he agreed with the Natural Point Thrillers, Ric Flair did not agree with Lex Luger. Since he didn't get that match, he would get this match here, and to sort of get an edge, he would start attacking Dwayne Bruce, as we saw in a promo earlier. We actually would wrestle him on a Nitro, I believe. There's a Luger-Dwayne Bruce match. And also a weird bit where Gober was forced to wrestle Dwayne Bruce as well. There's a lot of Dwayne Bruce in this promo. It's like Bruce wants Luger, so he goes to Sanders, and Sanders tells him he has to do something for him. Yes. And it ends up neither of them realizing at first that they're going to end up facing each other. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing this character is suddenly super important in the story, coming out of nowhere. Well, good for him, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, don't take away from him. It's just funny that he's suddenly so integral to this story. Yeah. Michael Buffer does the introductions, calling this a no-holds-barred, no-disqualification contest in which anything goes. <laughs> I was kidding before, man. Don't actually say all three of them. <laughs> Luger seems bothered by the smoke in his entrance, waving it away. He doesn't get any of the cool lighting or anything else this time, and that makes his dramatic music feel kind of over the top. He does pull excellent sarcastic faces, mockingly interacting with the fans, though, which almost makes up for it. Goldberg gets his full usual entrance, and it's still as great as ever. Tony calls him the Human Cyborg, (laughs) which is one of the weirder nicknames I've heard. I mean, cyborgs are part human already, so... Yeah. Is that better or worse than calling Steve Austin the Bionic Redneck? It's it's worse. Okay. Yeah. Because rednecks are not inherently bionic. And bionics are not inherently rednecks. Unless you pay them $6 million. Yeah. Yes. A sign in the crowd wishes Goldberg a happy Hanukkah. Nice of you, random person. 
Yeah. Goldberg chases Luger out of the ring and beats him up outside while Buffer is still finishing his intro. The announcers have to retreat so fast that we briefly lose their audio. Rolling Luger back in, Goldberg dominates with almost casual clotheslines and a huge suplex toss and roars at the camera. He's always very good at knowing exactly where he needs to look Mm -hmm. when he's doing that. Easy shoulder slam by Goldberg and Luger tries to flee, but Goldberg chases him down, but Luger shoves him into the ring post. Goldberg dodges chair shots, and Luger hits the ring post and drops the chair as Sarge comes down, with Bagwell trying to convince Sarge not to get involved. Luger flees back in the ring, and Goldberg hits an amazing flying shoulder block from half across the ring. Mm -hmm. Goldberg tries the spear, but Luger pulls Silverman in the way. Bagwell rescues Silverman, and Goldberg tries again, but Luger ducks through the ropes, and Goldberg stops. I'm not sure why, as he clearly still could have hit. (laughs) Luger clocks Sarge and Goldberg with his brass knuckles, then takes off the knucks, even though they'd be totally legal to keep using in this match. It's about a fair play, Bob. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he gets two and three quarters on a pin. Bagwell climbs to the second rope as Goldberg punches Luger and Luger ducks. Bagwell clearly intentionally hits his buff blockbuster on Goldberg, but everyone acts like it was an accident and Luger even throws Bagwell out of the ring. Weird spot. Why is he mad at Bagwell? Yeah, I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> yeah. Luger tries the torture rack, but Goldberg grabs the ropes to block and hits a spinning neck breaker as Bagwell helps Sarge up. Bagwell suddenly punches Sarge and chokes him as Goldberg spears Luger. Bagwell clearly sees Goldberg going to hit the jackhammer on Luger, but just kind of stands there waiting for it to happen, and Goldberg gets the three count and the win as Bagwell finally starts moving. Okay. So I suspect that the timing was all kinds of wrong on Bagwell's spots in this match, and that's why this seems really confusing story-wise. Okay. I think that the idea on the first spot is supposed to be that Bagwell appears to jump at Luger while he's still standing, Mm -hmm. but then Luger ducks just in time, and Bagwell hits Goldberg instead with the buff blockbuster. Yep. But because Bagwell jumps too late or Luger ducks too early, it becomes obvious it was intentional. So why Luger's throwing him out is that what Luger is supposed to have seen is... Bagwell just tried to attack me, and I countered it. Mm-hmm. Not Bagwell intentionally helped me, which oh, yeah, is what no. it ends up looking like. Right. Yeah. Then at the ending, I think Bagwell's just supposed to be too busy with Sarge to notice Luger's about to lose, but he looks too early. So that's what I'm guessing. There's just there's no way that this was how it was supposed to be performed. I hope not. Bagwell climbs in and clocks Goldberg several times with a chair, then laughs and does a little dance. He helps Luger out as Sarge comes back in to check on Goldberg, who has by that time already recovered. Way to kill the drama there. Goldberg goes and retrieves a kid from the crowd and carries him around on his shoulders, posing for pictures with the kid's parents. That was really heartwarming to see, I do have to say. <laughs> it's a little weird juxtaposition. It is. Oh, yeah. I'm so angry. Right, oh, yeah. Kid. I kind of wish they'd done that before the match. Yeah. So it didn't like mess with the story, but I don't know. Well, they did talk about him spending all day at Make-A-Wish, so... I thought that was good. Yeah, I, I think it was a nice thing to do, and it's right. really cute. But it just got—it is a weird juxtaposition of oh, I've just been betrayed and beaten with a chair, and I've, I'm cool with it. I'm just going to go and hang out with this kid and his family. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Uh, I did like some of the action. Goldberg had some, as usual, good moves. He never quite fully forms a match for me. He it's a series of moves, but he definitely relies on someone else to make it all come together. Mm-hmm. I think Luger is fine at that, but it's nothing special. 
It's not like DDP or something like no. that, where you can really get a complete story out of yeah. it, necessarily. Or even, weirdly enough, I'm surprised to say Nash, I thought their match, no, yeah, other absolutely. than the nonsense, was structured really well. They had a good back and forth. Yeah, we, we all, I think, rather liked that match up until the ending moments. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, my bigger note was that the story supersedes the action again, and it is just as confusing. <laughs> yes. Ignoring the exclamation you gave of just them messing the timing up, when it was, what is up with Bagwell and Luger? <laughs> yes. Because they mess up the timing so much, it becomes a really, really confusing story, where it looks like Bagwell intentionally helped Luger, and Luger knew it, but then Luger just decided to beat up Bagwell, but Bagwell was like, nah, we're cool, we're still friends, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, and it's fighting with Sarge, and you're like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so screwed up. And because of all of that, it really takes away from the match. Which Absolutely, is, yeah. As short as it is, the action you get in spurts is good. It's just, yeah, it's so much nonsense around it, it's just hard to focus on it. Yeah, you're you're taken out of the match by trying to figure out what is actually happening. Yes. I really like the intro to the match where, you know, you do the normal thing where someone retreats and they expect the person to be, you know, still gloating and trying to get some crowd cheers in and everything. Mm-hmm. The bell's rung when they're both outside, and I like that. Mm-hmm. Goldberg in the beginning looked like unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Simple, no wasted movements. There was n- little counterplay at that point. As far as, you know, the, the, the parts where you're questioning Bagwell's involvement, <laughs> I thought the announcers did a good job of, of saying, look, it was an accident. He meant to go for him. Mm-hmm. I never really had the thought that it was uh, intentional or whatever at that point. That lasted all like 20 seconds, but it was still mm-hmm. like, all right, well, whatever. And I thought that, uh, at least for me, it played up how resilient Goldberg was. Mm-hmm. Like he was able to recover from that. But yeah, when everyone started turning on each other, I thought this was silly. And <laughs> yeah, and, and the whole Luger thing, uh, attacking Buff mirrored the use of the brass knucks. I thought at some point that maybe Luger had some sort of pride. They weren't, I'm not going to use the weapon to to win, and I don't need Buff Bagwell to win either. Because hmm. Luger can go become a heel and still have some redeeming qualities. <laughs> For me, I thought that like he was just saying, I'm gonna, I got this. Yeah. I don't need any more interference. Honestly, I thought it was Luger just trying to get a clean win. You know, a cleaner yeah, I, I, win. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, I wanted to like this more than I did. Goldberg does his usual high-intensity offense, and it looks good. Mm-hmm. But Luger barely does anything other than take a few swings with weapons. It just feels like this could have been Goldberg versus anybody, honestly. There's very little sense of Lex Luger in this match, other than the torture rack attempt at the end. I wish this had felt more even, or at least more complex. Instead, it's just Goldberg beating Luger up, interrupted only by brief chair shots or brass knuckle shots from Luger. It'd be fine as a Goldberg comeback, but not as the entire story of the match. Mm, I see that. Add the tremendously screwed up Bagwell spots, and this match is kind of a boring mess to me. At least it was short. It was pretty disappointing to me, honestly. You know what would have helped the match is if so you have Dwayne Bruce being followed by Buff Bagwell, and they're both being followed by Junior Oakland. There you go. Like, everyone in the backstage is walking out. Yeah, just out. Train, train of all the backstage people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Out a few seconds later is Glacier, who starts slapping hands with the crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it could have also been better if Luger used the brass knucks as only like a, a last resort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything to Goldberg. It, it was just more like this is what I'm supposed to use it. It wasn't like he was. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like he was being pinned or held or whatever, and then he pulled him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a strategic place where he had to use him. Right. I thought that would add a little more drama to it and, and make him seem more desperate. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen. Like you were saying, Al, that's one of the points where it feels like you've got the spots, but you don't actually have all the connective thread that brings this match together and makes a full story out of yes. it. It is a bit disjointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, too, Luger has kind of lost all his mojo. Because mm-hmm. he used to have this full entrance. He, well, he used to have his cool, silly music. Yes. And then he had the more dramatic entrance, which he got before. And now he doesn't have that, and his he doesn't have his longer hair. and doesn't. No, yeah. He looked like Brock Samson, though. I'll give yes. him that. Yes. He did look like Brock Samson. It, just, like, it doesn't feel like Luger anymore, really. Yeah, it, it feels so strange. It's like, I'll give him that he was doing you know some excellent crowd work on the way to the ring yeah. still. But it feels like... I don't even want to say that it feels like he's being lazy or anything, because it's not that. It feels like just everything that makes him Luger has been kind of stripped away at yeah. this moment. He's the damaged package. Yeah. <laughs> Would not sign for it. <laughs> I was thinking this as you're describing the wrap-up, where you see Bagwell and Luger leaving would have actually made it extra funny, and that's made it great, is if as Bagwell starts to walk away, stops, reaches into the ring, you think for like a weapon, he pulls out his big top hat. Oh my gosh. And he just puts it on. So I told you, no, he's properly above Bagwell again. I, I would have turned the show off, Al. <laughs> <laughs> you don't love the idea that he pulls that stupid hat out as a weapon? I hate that hat. <laughs> I know. But that way you know he's evil above Bagwell because he's wearing the hat again. So despite the confusion of how exactly this whole thing is supposed to work, this leads to the forming of a classic tag team totally buffed. To clarify, that is totally buffed, as in past tense, not totally buff, as in present tense. Right. It's kind of weird. I don't understand that at all. Maybe it's, like, buffed as in, like, waxing a car. Yeah. You're looking at your, yeah, looking at your car, your new floor as well. They've been totally buffed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, why is it buffed, not buff? That's that's weird. Yes. Probably copyright. <laughs> Starcade. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, this leads to them challenging Goldberg to a match at Sin, which is a tag team match featuring Dwayne Bruce. All right. And now Goldberg's got a tag partner defending his career. Okay. We cut to a video package covering Scott Steiner's reign of terror as world champion and Flair bringing back Sid Vicious to face him at Starcade. So our final match is the Millennium Man, Sid Vicious, versus Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner with Medeja for Steiner's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Mark Slick Johnson. Scott Steiner is now the world champion, obviously, and not Medeja, despite the way she wore the belt. He wanted the previous show where he dethroned champion Booker T and seemingly took him out for quite a while with a vicious attack afterwards. Following that, he was challenged... Uh, on television shows by Sting, who, as we've noted, takes a nice break around Starcade and during this run. Yeah. Storyline-wise, injury taken out by Scott Steiner. So fortunately, Ric Flair brought in, I guess, the next best thing, which is Sid Vicious. That is not the next best thing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
He's like, wow, that, that attack was very vicious. Wait. <laughs> yes. I've got it. Woo! <laughs> that or Ric Flair was in the back listening to Sex Pistols album. He's like, wait a second. I know a guy with the same name. <laughs> like, who has the same haircut as Luger? Stan Lane. Yeah. That's true. Oddly fast-paced choral music plays underneath Michael Buffer's intro. If he could hear that, it had to be hard to resist talking in rhythm to the music. <laughs> Sid's music is actually kind of nice, but it doesn't really scream crazy guy. More classic rock sounding. Steiner, on the other hand, has a tremendously annoying siren. <laughs> he and Medeja wear chainmail, and she carries a lead pipe. Minor interesting note. Buffer calls Steiner the WCW Heavyweight World Champion, rather than his more usual WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World. So he's the champion of some place called the Heavyweight World? Well, no, he's the World Champion of WCW Heavyweight. Oh. It's the spinoff of WCW International. Yes. <laughs> wow. Full of random callbacks. Just interesting. It's not the way he normally does that. So Yeah, yeah. E- even he's tuned out at this point. Yeah. WCW. Steiner and Vicious trade off punching, and Vicious counters an atomic drop by being too tall. Yeah. Vicious side slam for one, and Steiner rolls out, then comes in and flexes as Vicious pulls a hilarious, oh yeah, kind of face. Steiner overpowers Vicious on a test of strength. Eventually, Vicious powers out and flips him over for two. Nice Vicious leg drop for two. Vicious clotheslines Steiner out, but while Johnson isn't looking, Medeja clubs Sid with her lead pipe. Then Steiner batters Sid with a chair in full view of Johnson, and the announcers explain that Johnson isn't calling for the DQ because it's a world title match. Why do disqualification rules exist if you won't use them? By that logic, every match on the show has been a world title match, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Different worlds, like Mario's, different worlds, and they're all champions. Back in, Steiner shows off with push-ups. Steiner backbreaker and a nice belly-to-belly suplex, and he gets the Steiner recliner, but Vicious gets the ropes, so Steiner just hits a vertical suplex and puts it on again. Vicious powers free and dodges a Medeja splash, so she hits Steiner, and Vicious gets a choke slam for two. Vicious uses a cobra clutch, but Steiner knocks Johnson out. Vicious hits a cobra clutch slam and covers despite having clearly seen Johnson go down. <laughs> he has poor luck with that referee. <laughs> he does. Medeja distracts Vicious so Steiner can hit him with the lead pipe as Charles Robinson takes over as referee. Steiner gets two off the lead pipe shots, even though Robinson had to have seen those as he ran in. Vicious's kickout does get big cheers. Jeff Jarrett in, but Vicious dodges his guitar shot and Jarrett nails Steiner, again, right in front of Robinson. Vicious gets two, but Jarrett pulls Robinson out, but Robinson ducks a Jarrett clothesline and runs back in to count another two and three quarters. How often do we get to see a referee actually dodge? It's extremely rare, yeah. Yeah, that, that was kind of amazing to see. Steiner slugs Vicious in the crotch and hits a T-bone suplex, then puts on the Steiner recliner again, basically choking Vicious, and Vicious passes out. Robinson doesn't bother with checking the arm and just calls for the bell, awarding the match to Steiner. Steiner poses with the big gold belt, but one of the side plates is actually popped partially free. That's <laughs> that, yeah. Thoughts on this one? Uh, my great summary was this is a clunky power match. Mm-hmm. They definitely do nice slam, really more Steiner than Vicious as a whole. But yeah. like you talk with other matches, a match that doesn't feel cohesive. It's just Steiner will hit a, some sort of suplex and pose a bit and then grab him and do a different move. There's no story like attacking one body part or mm-hmm. 
the back and forth thing, it's just, yeah, it's weird. And there's interesting spots, like the fact that Sebastian is too tall, so the knee doesn't come up and hit him in the groin during that move. <laughs> that, that did crack me up, I do have yeah. to say, yeah. It's no um, Invincible Abs spot, but it's close. No, no. Sebastian has no solid flow to it, because anytime something starts to happen, someone interferes, or there's an attack, or just something, it never get to keep pace. Maybe the two couldn't keep a solid pace, and that's to recover that. Like, they wouldn't wrestle like a, you know, a 10-minute chain wrestling power match. So, let's do a couple moves, and we'll, we'll do, put pauses in there so it looks like a whole match. Even though we're working only, like, a third of the match, really. Yeah. It's interesting to see Charles Robinson dodge the attack and go in for the pin. Especially after he's pulled out. Yeah. Because a lot of times, the, the pull-out thing knocks him out. Like, they'll pull him all the way out to the floor, or you pull him and immediately hit him. Jared was just being really sporting and giving him a moment to yeah. decide whether or not to take the blow or not. We'll be Again. totally honest there. If that had been the pinfall when he charged back in, Charles Robinson would be my MVP. Oh, yeah. Just just for the unusual nature of that spot. Yeah. Yeah, I grant you that. <laughs> yeah, there's just way too much outside interference between Medeja and, and Jeff Jarrett, who's back again for some reason. There's stuff that doesn't quite flow together, like... Steiner is like completely knocked out for a very long count from the guitar shot, and then just pops back up with a low blow, like, yeah. oh, I'm not unconscious now. Yep. I have expected Jarrett to pull pull the ref out again, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a very long sell of that, so then suddenly being up just makes no sense. Mm, yeah. Never mind the fact that that thing is balsa wood and shatters when like the wind hits it. <laughs> But people got to sell it like they're shot the shotgun blast in the face. Yeah. It's not, it's just not that good, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I don't put a lot of blame on Sid in this. Sid does what he can. Obviously, if this had been a lot of the people who have been in an interesting match, people like Bret Harder could have made this really good. But it feels like it's been booked to cover for both of them. So no one really looks good because of that. Mm-hmm. One of the few matches where I actually saw like a test of strength look good. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm just used to Hogan doing it, but (laughs) (laughs) like it is a legacy move. It works for Sid Vicious, and I think it makes it work for Scott Steiner here or Papa Pump. They sell it really well. You know, they're all uh, very vascular at the point. Yes. Yes. Uh, It does look like a test of power through freakish people that vaguely resemble humanoids <laughs> yeah yeah that's what you said although steiner's arm has that extra. oh my gosh it's terrifying yeah yeah well i know but i mean like you think of hulk and abomination or like doomsday and superman like they're okay yeah it, yeah. it yeah. is more it is mm-hmm. over the top big it's sold mm-hmm. well yes even though it is longer probably than those three bear hugs it <laughs> still was better and i think that's the only reason why this match was longer than the last one because <laughs> of the test of strength pretty much yeah like goldberg you know they really put steiner to be indestructible in this match you know he took some hits and had a lot of interference but he popped back there was a lot of similarities in this match than there was the last one yeah it's tricky it's a tricky thing with him because he has to be this super dangerous guy who can throw you around the ring but then once you start getting offense, then he has to get protected from pinfalls. Mm-hmm. It's a little tricky, though, to manage. Well, like, uh, the Jarrett, oh no, <laughs> 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 was, was was done pretty funnily. Um, 
I thought it was a decent match, especially with, you know, Sid coming out of retirement kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to give him some grace on that. So it was the best match it could have been for Sid. I think that giving him the edge where Steiner gets hit from a missed uh, interference or a guitar, random errant guitar, <laughs> you know, it, it gave it an opportunity for him to kind of pull ahead, even if he didn't win. Yeah. A tremendously basic match, I thought. <laughs> it's not that there's any mistakes in the action, it's just that there's nothing much going on with this one. It doesn't feel at all epic or interesting. Not at all worthy of being a main event. The way the story just entirely ignores disqualification rules really hurts it too. The heels don't even try to hide their cheating. Steiner and Jarrett repeatedly openly hit Sid with the chair, a lead pipe, or a guitar, and actually on Steiner in that case, in full view of either Johnson or Robinson. It's weird, right? We've had two shows where we asked why the world title match had to be no DQ because nobody did anything DQ worthy. That's true, yeah. Now, it has DQ rules, but the heels blatantly and obviously do things to draw a DQ and just don't. <laughs> like Scott Sarn just punching the referee just in the face. Right, yeah. He didn't go, oh, I slipped. He just went, bam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is that too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Basic, pretty dull action combined with completely ignoring the rules makes this a bad match for me and a really poor end to this Starcade. The follow-up to this is that Scott Steiner, of course, has to keep defending his world title. As noted, Jeff Jarrett gets promoted to a world championship contender. They hold a series of matches to determine who's going to be the other contender. Sid ends up winning that. So now you've got Jeff Jarrett and Sid and Scott Steiner. However, CEO Ric Flair throws in a extra bonus, which a mysterious figure is also going to be part of the match. A weird masked, fully covered man who starts interfering in affairs leading up to the match. We have a mystery... I'll say mystery partner, but we have a mystery competitor. I'm sure this match will end well for everybody. <laughs> yeah. That match may be one of the truest expressions of the January curse. Yeah, that's, that's fair. As Steiner flexes, Tony quickly signs off, and Starcade 2000 is done. <laughs> that was sudden. <laughs> Overall thoughts on Starcade 2000. So it's a show where there's lots of matches, thankfully less than we've had in the past. Yeah. It's not a 13-match show or a 12-match oh show or anything. I feel like there's still, we could have cut one or two matches. Yes. I'm not sure if there's one, but overall, I think you could have. Uh, the problem with the show is that there's no match that I think fully lives up to potential in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them are truly terrible. There are some shows where we have a match that just absolutely is not good. I don't think anything in here is really that bad. But nothing in here is also as good as it could be and what it should be, quite frankly. So it's a disappointing show more than it is a bad show. There's only like two matches that don't have outside interference in them. Mm-hmm. And it's actually where you think about them. So it's basically just the matches that are actually no DQ and hardcore matches. Yeah, true. No one interferes in the ambulance match. No one really interferes that notably in the hardcore match with Terry Funk and Crowbar. No. Daphne's involved a little bit. It's not really notable. Mm-hmm. I mean, Leah Meow interferes in the one match pretty notably to pull Jamie Noble off. Yeah. Does screaming count? Screaming, screaming definitely interfered with my enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like other matches where there's someone right, no. running in or... Yeah, yeah I get you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird thing that matches where it's open season are the ones that no one bothers. That's true. Yeah. 
it's just a lot of weird things that don't quite make sense, whether the travel using interference, the fact that the no DQ things don't quite make sense. You have matches that change halfway through. Probably more than one of those is ridiculous. <laughs> the parts that should be strong are just not strong enough. Nothing that truly elevates the show to what it needs to be, especially given that we know this is the final Starcade. Obviously, they didn't know that. <laughs> but yeah, nothing feels like, oh, this is the final Starcade. At least we have something big to go out on. I mean, well, I didn't like the way the story went. If you had had something along to say the, the old Kevin Nash Goldberg break the streak thing happen on something on that level of importance happened to mm-hmm. show, you'd be like, okay, I don't like where the story goes, but at least there's a big angle on Starcade. Yeah. The problem is they put the title on Scott Steiner right before Starcade. His title was in Mayhem. So there's no long story build culminating at Starcade here. It's just, he's champion now, and we're starting stories. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. Ooh. The latter match should not be a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I was going to sum up the Star K2000, it would be misdirection. There is, like, like you said, a lot of interference. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of storyline-driven matches rather than them being good matches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can tell that there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of trying, there's a lot of energy, and a lot of matches. I mean, I think each one basically had some redeeming element to it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was always some sort of flow issue or too many missed spots to really put it up there as a good Starcade. It was sort of a middle ground for me. Other than the names that were used, pretty unremarkable. Yeah, it's got a lot of star power, and you would think it would be more done with star power. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. This was just a Cade for me. <laughs> and, uh, this is a Starcade, but the only one R. Right. There you go. Like, you know, I forget which Starcade it was, but they had, like, some World War uh, video package where they were talking about, like, the thing that was coming up the next pay-per-view, and, and that should not be a highlight. I think that was the highlight for me for that, that Starcade. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I should not be... Seriously considering Glacier as my MVP. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He doesn't even, he doesn't even appear I am. or speak. No, I get you. Yeah. Yeah, that, that promo woke me up as well. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> the rampant sexism and, and other stuff, that, that, that it is what it is. It doesn't add anything to the show, put it that way, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. Absolutely. And, and go from there. Take it what you will. You know, I, yeah. I didn't even chuckle with the, the silliness of it. I think they were trying to be a little bit more edgy, trying to get more, uh, try to reclaim some of that fan base. They, they they had to have known it was waning, so they had to change things up. And Bagwell probably showed up with his top hat full of ideas, and they just grabbed them. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff Jarrett's like, I, I got two slips of paper. I might as well just add these together, and I want to have the bunkhouse. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they were trying to up change the formula a little bit, but I think they just had a bad mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so while I felt like I've eaten a meal, it's not one I would go back to again and visit anytime soon. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, this was just a show. It's not an awful show. It's not a good show. It's just kind of there. It feels really weird to say that. 
Yeah. This is the last ever Starcade. The final show of a series that's run since 1983. It feels like this should be big. It feels like this should be epic. But it isn't. It makes sense. And it's not like they knew this was the final Starcade, but it feels so small, so inconsequential, so simple. And that just feels wrong. Yeah. I know it's not fair to expect something special based on events that hadn't happened yet at the time of the show, but it's hard to avoid. Even without that sense of its place in history, that sense of finality, this show would be a disappointment. With it, it's kind of crushing or deflating to watch it. I wanted this show to be more than what it was. It's not fair to it, but it is what it is. And what it is, is pretty boring. After a good enough start with the ladder match, it just trots out basic match after basic match, with no one really doing anything exceptional or particularly involving. That's despite actually having some good variety in terms of match types. I will definitely credit the show with that. It keeps changing things up. It's just that, even as it does, it doesn't feel like anything's rising above a moderately acceptable level. There's nothing to really sink your teeth into, nothing to really enjoy or get excited about. You can spend a few hours watching it, but you'll forget it the next day. Except for some of the perplexing storyline stuff, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Rules and stories are just kind of confusing tonight, from the way tag rules suddenly disappeared or appeared, to the (laughs) way disqualifications were just kind of ignored repeatedly, to the strange interference spots by Chavo Guerrero and Buff Bagwell. I just didn't know what to make of a lot of events on the show. It felt strange to watch, like I was constantly short one detail that I needed to really understand it. That sort of feeling kept taking me out of the show and made it hard to get into matches. Whenever I did, something strange would happen and I'd distance myself to think that through. Presentation has generally taken a hit this year. (laughs) Yeah. The simple set and often underwhelming entrances make the show seem small and unimportant and the direction goes into overdrive with missing important shots. Segments like Madden trying to pick up Sanders' promo on his own headset mic, just so there wasn't enough thought put into how to stage things or how events should be run. Promo packages are positioned pretty well, but often they don't really tell you much about the story going into a match. The announced team doesn't have much chemistry. No. Madden is particularly bad. He seems to be trying to go for a Bobby Heenan sort of act, but where Heenan tended to have clever jokes and a quick and sharp delivery, Madden tends more towards sexual references and dirty humor delivered with all the subtlety of a wrecking ball crashing through a building. (laughs) The announcers do manage some good discussions in the middle of some matches, but it's all crippled by them having to work around the jokes rather than work with the jokes. And even at their best, they just don't fit together that well. (laughs) The best commentator is wrestler Chavo Guerrero. Yeah, that's true, actually. Starcade 2000 isn't a mess or a disaster. It just isn't really anything. It feels like something you could have just seen on any given episode of Nitro or Thunder. There's nothing special about it, nothing that stands out, nothing that makes you say, wow. It's not an awful show. We've seen some worse Starcades. <laughs> but it's just sad. Despite having a lot of new talent on it, this doesn't feel like a show about potential. It feels like a show about running in place. Yes. There's no sense of momentum, of building, of trying to climb higher. It feels like WCW is satisfied with where it is. And where it is, is not good. I do agree with you. Um, You can even notice that they're satisfied where they're at. If, If you listen to the commentary, usually... 
when they say it's the granddaddy of them all or whatever, I think they only say it twice the whole time. But usually mm-hmm. they do so much of uh, making it seem grandiose in, in, in previous Starcades, uh, up to the point where we had the NWO, maybe. After that, it was kind of mm-hmm. like yeah. we're anti-establishments, and then we never really reestablished anything. <laughs> You know, they don't have anything to build from it. They just talk about the matches and, re- and rather than the entire event as a whole. Mm-hmm. It was really annoying in the first several where they kept on, like, every single one seemed like they were pitching the show for people that were already attending the show. <laughs> True. <laughs> and I know they were just working it in, but it felt like there was no no gravitas. There wasn't any pomp or there's a big pop of pomp in no circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of big names, and they did nothing. They did not put them in lights. They put them in Christmas lights, if if any. Mm-hmm. They didn't really build anyone up, and at least they had a few promos that you know helped. Like actually, the best promo was straight into the thing. It was like, I won't be a stepping stone. You know, I won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the most genuine in something that like, oh, wow, okay, there's some some meaning to this whole thing. You know, I'm not going to go down without a fight, and that should be like that for every single <laughs> big match. Yeah. yeah. And that wasn't even a big match. I mean, it, I mean, I guess it was, but you know what I mean? It wasn't like the main event. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's disappointing. For sure. All right. Match of the night and MVP. Oh, I was so decisive about it that I didn't write it on my printout. So I'm sort of working <laughs> without uh, safety here. Yep. High point match-wise for me is obviously the ladder match. While it has some terrifying spots in it, and some spots that just don't make sense logically because they're setting up all stuff, it's still really entertaining, and it's still notable. It's probably the match I'll maybe think of the most from the show, for better Mm -hmm. or for worse. I guess I could make a case for the Lance Stormers-Miller match, but even though it has this story to it, the interference kind of takes away, and it's not 100% smooth, and it's just... Has that whole part in the middle with mm-hmm. the ref and all that. Honestly, the only match that I don't have really issues with, other than me thinking it could have been better, is the ambulance match between Mike Awesome and Bam Bam Bigelow, which I was not expecting to pick going into the <laughs> show before we watched it. I was like, something's going to happen in one of these matches. To be like, but no, honestly, it, it all comes together. I don't have an issue with the moving to the ambulance in the back again. I thought it worked fine. I thought they worked. With the props they're given without adding new props for no reason. And they had good character work throughout, plus they make awesome. Ben Bigelow didn't add a whole lot, but he didn't detract from it. And then they built nicely to that creative finish mm-hmm. where he knocked on the thing. Mike Awesome seems legitimately surprised and happy, and he, and he slowly realizes that he's won. Um, even though it's not the most important match in the show, and it shouldn't be the most noble match for me, got, I have to go with that one. Okay, so ambulance match, match of the night? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, MVP, I could see myself being a case for DUP because he made the most of that tag match. He was mm-hmm. such a part of that. I am very tempted to give it to him. I was trying to think when I rewatched the latter match, the last match I rewatched for this. Can I find one person throughout that match, out of the six or seven if you count Liam Meow? Like didn't have a terrifying screw up or some weird silly thing. I can maybe make a case for Helms, but even thinking back at it and watching reviewing the recap and discussing it, they, there's not one big Shane Helms moment because so much happens in that match mm-hmm. with all the people. So I 
be kind of cheating to give it to him as much as I like Shane Helms. I know where it's going with him. So, like, honestly, you should do what most people would normally do in situations like this and stick with someone from the match of the night, which would make perfect sense. So I feel like I'm probably going to go back to Mike Awesome. Okay. He played his character right. He did his moves perfectly well, and he made it all work. Oh, yeah. He 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 did an excellent job with uh, with what he had tonight. So Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going with. Okay. John? There's a lot of disjointed uh, things tonight, a lot of disappointments, a lot of interference. Um, I don't want to agree with Al, but those were the two <laughs> most... No, no, I, I you know, I want to have some variety. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. I actually like General Erection's promo, but it definitely wasn't a good match. <laughs> no. I did like the ambulance match and the ladder match as well. Mm-hmm. I still see that stupid rolling punches and <laughs> <laughs> push into the ladder. But for my match of the night, I'm going to just swerve a little bit to the left, and I'm going to say DDP and, and Nash. Okay. Just because I was hoping for that Eye of Raw thing. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, I thought that, you know, DDP did a great job. Um, it was entertaining, like some of the other matches weren't. <laughs> sure. Even though Nash didn't have a lot of play, you know, until the end, they weren't just trying to make things happen. It seemed a little more organic than some others. Mm-hmm. I did not have to, like, jump through any logistical hoops in order to like it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I get that, yeah. I can see that. I didn't have to worry about too many convoluted storylines to get there (laughs) or deal with anything other than we're going to retain this. And, you know, you got a little bit of uh, star power there. So, Mm -hmm. and my MVP and it's, it's between either Ernest, the cat Miller. (laughs) I know that's, that's a strange one to do, but he was the only one that I really like enjoyed watching the whole time he was on there, even though he looked very confused <laughs> with what he was yeah, supposed yeah. to do. And I loved the dancing, and, and like there was no joy in the show. Mm-hmm. And he brought a little bit of levity other than craziness. Yeah. <laughs> and Glacier. <laughs> <laughs> and I am going to have to give it to Glacier, because Glacier promised me something <laughs> okay. that I wanted more than anything else in the show. <laughs> you know what? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. Fair enough, yeah. After Glacier, I did not care what matches happened. <laughs> I, I was trying to fit it in a world that worked with Glacier. <laughs> there you go. And and this is all about climate change. There you go. I we see. need more glaciers in our lives. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. No, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I will... Honestly, say that I considered that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. For me, this is one of those shows where I have to remind myself that this is match of the night. I had a lot of problems with it, but I'm still going to go for the opening six man ladder match. Really? Despite some weird rules confusion, a kind of strange but intriguing ending, a load of botches, and a setup that took suspension of disbelief and hurled it off a ladder scaffold. That match had so much athleticism and so many creative spots that it still managed to impress. Sure. It's a tempered sort of impressed feeling, but it's still there. 
And see, you know we can do better with this in the future if yes. you give it a chance. It's right. kind of fresh. Yeah, I got you. But definitely still seeing the potential for yeah. me there. Yeah. Sure. Nothing else tonight really did that. Most matches were kind of okay, but nothing raised to another level other than that first match for me. For my MVP, man, I had a hard time with this. Yeah. Chavo Guerrero, I guess. <laughs> it's it's weird to say, but he did a good job building up the teams while still acting as the heel on opening match commentary. He did a good job making something of the weird two number one contenders angle, and a good, albeit very confusing, job with the Rection-Douglas match. Much like Jarrett last year, Chavo did a good job with the material he's been given, and it's not his fault that the material he was given sometimes wasn't that great. So I, I enjoyed his contributions to the show, and I thought he did a good job with a kind of complicated character bit they had him doing. Fair enough, yeah. Honorable mentions. Number one, Charles Robinson for actually dodging Jarrett's attempt to knock him out, which was crazy unusual. Yeah, for sure. And number two, a really nice older lady in the front row in the red jacket who was, against all odds, having the time of her life snapping photographs with her little camera. <laughs> I, was, I was really enjoying watching her. She was uh, she was clearly having a good time. So hey, yeah. there was that. <laughs> it's an inter- interesting variety there. Yeah, yeah. That's Y'all have a- introduction for their own, own logic and own reasons, yeah. I mean, we've we've had shows in the past where where, where none of us have had the same as another. I think, yeah. but this is the most varied. I think I we've think been. Oh so, yeah, yeah. It's neat. I appreciate that. There will be no Starcade two thousand one. No. In January two thousand one, Fusion Media Ventures, working with Eric Bischoff, made an offer to purchase WCW from AOL Time Warner. Though the company would have new ownership, its television shows would continue. Things were starting to look up. But in March 2001, AOL Time Warner executive Jamie Kellner, made head of the company's Turner Broadcasting Division, canceled WCW's television shows. According to a spokesman, WCW was, quote, not consistent with the upscale brands that they'd built at TBS and TNT, and so it wouldn't be carried anymore. That killed the not-yet-finalized deal, as backers pulled out when it became clear their new wrestling company would not even have access to a television audience anymore. Yeah. And that left an opening for Vince McMahon. In March 2001, WCW was purchased by its primary competitor, and at long last, the war was finally unquestionably lost. The final Monday Nitro aired March 26, 2001, would open with a triumphant McMahon proclaiming his victory. The show would try its best to do honor to WCW's legacy in the midst of setting up WWF storylines. The actual final WCW show aired, however, was WCW Worldwide on March 31st, 2001. The Starcade name would eventually be resurrected by the WWF, now the WWE, for special events starting in 2017. So, the final WCW Starcade. A series that has run since 1983 has reached its conclusion. The first ever professional wrestling supercard has met its end. That wraps up our review of Starcade 2000. But we're not quite done with Starcade as a whole. Next episode, we're going to take some time to discuss the series, the highs and lows, our favorite moments, and probably some of our least favorite moments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what we've drawn from the series. 
What was Starcade for Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW? Were there any unifying themes to the shows? So, our final Starcade discussion. But while Starcade may be ending, let's go to the ring. We'll continue looking at WCW series by series. What will we be covering next? Find out next time. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. And gaze at the stars and wonder. <laughs> After erection splash. <laughs> Man, that sounded bad, actually. Sorry. Go on. Rection tries a... <laughs> Rection does a splash. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, I wasn't thinking about that until you said that earlier, John. <laughs> about them being careful pronouncing it. Mm-hmm.